Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. And also... Mayan Priel. Hello and welcome, Mayan. This is your first appearance in the Smorgasbord. This is the first guest appearance we have, right? Second, actually. Right? What did you have? We had Chagai Palevsky on the show when oh, right, you were away right. in when England. When I was away, yes. <laughs> yes. you tried to replace me with the younger generation. Right. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it hadn't been for those rotten kids. Your, your Team Drake to my Jason Tadas? <laughs> Whoa, that's Whoa. a bad ending. That's going into, like, very... Because did people call to get rid of you, or... <laughs> okay. There were so many. Anyway, this is, a, this is a comic book podcast brought to you, as always, by the fine folks at Seaports, the best online and unusual source. For comic books and pop culture's news, reviews, and critique, buy their books, read their articles. Uh, this episode is a special one. This is our end of the year special, our second annual Smorgies Award, right? Yes. It's the episode in which we talk about the highs, the lows, and the WTFs of 2015. And like time, I would also like to welcome our special guest, Mayan Priel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Would you like to tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Um, I'm Mayan Priel. Uh, I'm currently a student. University. Uh, I write in the sh- in the um, site website Alilon, uh, and also in the um, anime and manga fanzine uh, Thought, Bu- Thought Bubble. Um, that's it. I am also a very big fan of your podcast, Legend oh, of Fangirls. Oh right. Uh, we also have a female geek podcast called Legend of Fangirl. You can find it on Alilon. Yes. Also, it's in Hebrew, so it is yeah. our international listeners. But if ever Hebrew, there was a reason then, to learn the language, yeah. yeah, that's it. There you go. We should do an international. We really should chapter. just get like yeah. people from all over. Exactly. So we have a lot of ground to cover this year. Let's jump right into it. The first award in the Smorgies 2015 is the Tina Belcher Award for Best Female Character. Tom, why don't you start us off? Uh, I'm going to start with Daisy from Giant Days, uh, journalist on Alyssa Trayman's college drama comedy thing. This now Giant Days will appear several more times in the podcast if I'm to be involved and I am. And Daisy is just such a wonder, such a clear balance of, you know, nervous energy and goodwill towards men. And she's responsible for most of the comedy there. All of the characters have comedic element, but she's like, like this bundle of energies just bounces around like, what does this do? And what does this do? And oh, a pigeon. Hello, pigeon. We are now friends. <laughs> and the first time she takes drugs, which is, I think the most amazing scene in comic this year. <laughs> it was issue number three, I believe. And yes. Lisa Trayman, uh, we'll talk about her later, but she's just a wonder and I want to read everything about her and everything she was in and I want to have her own graphic novel and, you know, Daisy for the, the Wind. The Adventures of Daisy. Yeah. I would buy every issue of that. Definitely. Um, my pick is actually kind of um, new. Uh, it's Trish Walker from mm. uh, Jessica Jones. Um, I feel like uh, she was... Probably the best character in this show. I mean, except, you know, for the villain, who was an amazing character. But, like, Trish, she's such a strong character. And not, like, in the, you know, the usual strong she can kick ass, which she can. But she's also, like, super supportive of Jessica and doesn't take any shit from her, which I found really refreshing in a female female character. Um, she's also super successful woman in the business, which is hard to be, especially if you're a woman. Um... I don't know, I just really loved her, and I felt like she really added to the show. I feel like without Trish, this show would have been way less... Absolutely. I, I have to say, the casting was perfect. Yeah, it was. D- did it add something for you if you knew that she was Hellcat? That she um, was, like, Patsy Walker? I mean, I knew it, but, like, I didn't really connect with... I mean, I 
it's it's nice that she's getting her new a uh, new comic book uh, written by Kate Leth, I mm-hmm. think, right? Um, but I think even be- without you know being like, because she could kick ass, but most of the time she and doesn't, did. and she did. But <laughs> like most of the time she doesn't. She has other you know characteristics that make her the the amazing woman that she is. And I found that like you know she's not the typical strong female character that we have. So absolutely, she's an interesting counterpoint, I think, to Karen in Daredevil, yeah. in that they were like. Just looking at how these two characters, supporting characters, because they're not like the heroes, but they're canonical, and yet look at how differently they were interpreted. Yeah, and also, like, I, I do love Karen. I think she's also a very interesting character, and they are very different because Karen cannot kick ass mm-hmm. the stereotypical way, but she does it in, oh, she does in it. all the ways that she can. <laughs> I think that's, and they're both characters that were like violated in their own, like, safe places, yeah. but then they deal with it in very different ways. Yeah, she and Karen are exemplifying for me of something I once read about the difference between strong female character mm. to strong to strong character female. Yeah. yeah. Which is, yeah, she doesn't have to be physically strong, she has to be strongly written, and thank God, through Daredevil and through <coughs> Jessica Jones, we've got plenty of these characters. Oh, yes. It's easier to write a strong female character when you have... More than one. Yeah, it's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Math works. J.J. A- Abrams apparently figured that out. Who knew? <laughs> but we'll talk about that some other time. I took this award in a slightly different direction in that I asked myself what female character I really enjoyed this year and wanted to see more of. Not necessarily someone who was very prominent, but someone who interested me. And I'd like to give the Best Female Character Award to Faiza Hussein, Captain Britain. She appeared in the Al Ewing two-parter, Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders, this yeah. was the Secret Wars tie-in. And the thing is, Captain Britain, for me, has always been a really tough sell. It's meant to be this parallel with Steve Rogers, Captain America. It was never really convincing. Ellen Moore did a couple of nice things with it, but Brian Braddock, I just never really had the time for him. And Faiza Hussein, in the space of two issues, Al Ewing manages to make her so interesting like there's so much that you want to know about her and she's this character who comes out of nowhere and she has these abilities and she's she's a genuinely good person in this crazy mixed up world that makes no sense and i got to the end of the second issue and i'm like okay where's part three what do you mean there's no part three where is where is she why is marvel not putting her in a book just please give me more so that was absolutely, and I never had that kind of reaction to Captain Britain of all characters. So in that sense, she's definitely my pick. L. Ewing, in general, is so good at doing so much with so little because they gave him like two issues, do something with not only her. Like there were five main characters in that miniseries, and mm-hmm. he brought them all a step forward. It's a, the dude is amazing. He can do so much with so little. And Marvel, they put him on a lot of stuff, but I don't think they've given him his due because he's always on the you know. The third Avenger series, the fourth crossover mm-hmm. series, and most of the time with artists that I don't really appreciate. I mean, Gregland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's been settled with Gregland, and and he's a, such a nice guy. Whenever I listen to him, you know, doing a podcast, and saying, "Oh, I'm working with so and so, and he's so great," and I'm thinking, "No, no, you're so great. That guy's like, not so." Greg great. Land is such a great. No, he's no, not. he's not. You're <laughs> lying, Al. We love you, but you're lying. You're lying to yourself. uh, This year, I've got really into Judge Dredd, so I've read Mm. a lot of his earlier short stuff, and he can do... He's such an amazing writer, taking... Mm. uh, Like you said about Judge Dredd, 
even at the time, 2009, already a very overused, you know, done-to-death, 30 years of weekly series character, and finding the fresh angle, the yeah. new and exciting way to look at it. So, Al, if you're listening and you feel like suddenly you want to add Faisal Hussein to New Avengers, I'm okay with that. We are Just all so okay you know, with We're all ready for that. <laughs> okay. And now it's the Omar Little Award for Best Male Character. Um, I'm gonna... Okay. I'm going for Megatron from Transformers More Than Meets the Eye by James Roberts. Not my favorite Transformer title, which, as Sean and the listeners know, is Transformers by S.G.A. Joe. Uh, this year, well, technically the end of last year, and this year Megatron has been joined to the main crew of the series as a sort of repented tyrant. Only he's not really repented, and he tells everybody, no, I'm not sorry that I've started an intergalactic war that lasted millions of years and killed billions because my cause was right, but you've won and I sort of have to accept this. Mm. <laughs> so he's like, he's coming to grips with his past without ever admitting what I did was wrong. It's just, you won, so I have to go with you. I have to do what you tell me because you've got me on a short leash. That's new yeah. for Megatron. I love I love those like villain square characters who kind of they don't really have a redemption arc, but suddenly they are settled with like the main characters and they have to kind of deal with that. Mm. And he's portrayed as this he's super uber competent and everybody else on the ship that he settled with are the maniacs and the castoffs and all the people the other Transformers didn't want to be <laughs> on their planet. <laughs> So he's super competent, but he's still... So you start being for him as the series goes on, but every once in a while the writers, you know, throwing a little thing of, yeah, he's still the bad guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this ship that has this uh, homing distress, and we should go help, the, help them. And he's like, no. So no, he, no, no, we do, I, I don't know who they are. I don't care about them. Let them die. So he's the anti-Spike, basically. Yeah. yeah. He's the villain who's still the yeah, villain. And, you know, All I'll right. sing the praise of that series, Transformers More Than Meets the Eye, is so much better than anything. That's my New Year's resolution to yeah, read that book. Yeah, <laughs> with the name Transformers on it, has mm. the right to be. Nice. Um, so now I'm doing, I did Jessica Jones, so now I'm doing um, Daredevil, mm. and I think Foggy Nelson was really what made oh. this show for me. Because I, re- I read Daredevil a lot, and I've never really connected. Like, he was there, but I didn't really care all that much about him and I think in the show he was such a great character and such also like the fact that he's no not you know your typical masculine man but he's such a great and important character and he does kick ass um which is not typically what you see you know the chubby sidekick doing um and also like his sense of humor was so needed in that dark uh... oh, yes. he's, he's a comic sidekick without being ever the point of the joke himself mm. which exactly. is very difficult and the casting I don't remember the name of that guy Alden Hansen right it's just so perfect because when you look at Foggy in the comics you're like how you can't do that That's he like... wears a bow tie <laughs> yeah it's like you like, can't do that it's like Jimmy Olsen you cannot cast someone who no. would wear no. this and would look and would work and they're oh yeah, they did they actually did it yeah, but in such like, work. an excellent way. Yeah, yeah. He, there's something about him that seems more modern, I think, than like yeah. you think of old school Foggy in the comics, mm. and he's like this guy with a huge bow tie and like the messed up hair, and he's always late, and especially in those uh, flashbacks they did to their college days, that yeah. was perfect. That was that really was good. Really well uh, done. He he really is the heart of the show, I think, and mm. both in terms of the writing for the character. Which I think Foggy has always played that role in Daredevil. He's mm-hmm. always been sort of the person yeah. who pulls Matt back when you are going too far. And everybody loves to take Daredevil over the line to the point where he gets possessed by Satan. 
the actual Satan. It happens to all of us. <laughs> I mean, who, which one of us didn't wake up in the morning and just said, you know, yes, I'm the devil today. So he is always there, and I'm glad that Mark Waid didn't kill him off in the comics, and absolutely, he's, he's a great character. My pick is Michael Rhodes from Birthright. This is a character who, from the very first issue, Joshua William- Williamson sells his unconventional approach of, here's a guy who is the chosen one of prophecy. He's going to liberate this fantasy world that he got sucked into, and he's going to save everybody. He goes up and faces the evil god king lore and switches sides. He goes, quote unquote, bad, right? You would think that this is a villain arc. He comes back to Earth, he's older all of a sudden, he's on this mission for his new master. But what Williamson does, and the thing that I really appreciate about Birthright in general, is that you get the growing up and the present day at the same time. So you are seeing all of these different aspects of this character who doesn't fit into, certainly not the heroic mold, but he's not the villain either because you do get the sense when you see him as a child that he's sort of drawn into this whole thing and then you have this line from Laura like, do you think you're the first chosen one to come up to my door? It's interesting. By the way, we haven't talked about these before, our choices before the award to, uh, mm-hmm. before the award yeah. to surprise ourselves because you choose the inverse of mine because I chose the villain defeated by the bad guys and sort of brought under their spell by force and you chose the good guy yeah. defeated by evil and sort of forced to be evil without... The unchosen yeah. one. Yeah. You know, and, and I just really enjoy because it could have been the, the reason that he sticks out as such a dominant character, especially this year, is that as the story progresses, you can't fit him into some kind of preconceived notion of heroism or villainy, even though the story seems to be typical medieval fantasy because he isn't really serving lore because he wants to, but at the same time, he's doing this evil bad guy's uh, work on Earth. And his whole relationship with his brother and his family. It's just really, really interesting character. And I can't see, wait to see what happens next. Okay. Uh, our next award is the James Logan Howlett Award for Most Overexposed Character. I'm going to go with a franchise over a character because sure. Spider-Man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. There's technically a character. No, because... I don't have a problem with Peter Parker as a rule. I don't have a problem with Miles Morales as a rule. I don't have a problem with Spider-Man 2099 as a rule. But Are you going to go down the list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Spider-Women and Spider-Gwen and Spider-Men and Spider-Women and all. Yes. Too many of them. There's too many spiders in this house. That's when you call the exterminator. Exactly. Uh, the the house, spiders running around. The house of ideas. You remember when you had that name because you had more than one idea? <laughs> Marvel. It's like, you know, have three spider series is almost too much. Right now they have, I think, seven, which is Ugh. overkill. They're it's... the new X-Men. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All of these spiders. Spider- and, I mean, does anybody stand out? Uh, well, Spider-Gwen, I feel like, yeah. was a, a nice, friend, like, a brief of fresh air. But, yeah, that's, like... It. And even that, which we discussed the first arc, a while ago, and I liked it. Sean left. Even then, it's like, how long can you go with the alternate universe version? Which oh, yeah, every definitely. single issue, like, oh, it's the character you thought you knew, buddy. He's different. And after the artist basically went on that podcast and admitted that basically we can't invent new characters, so we're just like, well, we need a vampire. What's Luke Cage doing these days? <laughs> sure, alternate reality, Luke Cage is a vampire. Why not? You know, you might yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah, maybe trim down on the spiders. Spider line. Uh, mine is Deadpool, <laughs> which uh, 
I've never like really liked as a character in the general. I mean, he's funny, but that's I didn't. In short bursts. Yeah, exactly. Like he's just he's so much better when you can have him, you know, for one like issue or whatever. Not everything and not everywhere. And he is everywhere. And two sixteen is the movie year, so oh, oh it's only it's, gonna get it's worse. Gonna get How worse. can it possibly get worse? So, <laughs> it oh, will. It'll be the Deadpool Gwenpool team up. Yeah, That's exactly. What's gonna happen? They're just gonna be all over the place. Spiders and Deadpools and bears. Oh my! So my pick. We are basically all picking on Marvel uh, for this category, which should be telling you something, Joe Casada. You know, this is sending you a message. So my he pick cries is, into his millions of dollars every night. My pick for most overexposed character of 2015 is Doctor Doom. This is this is hard because I like Doom. I really do. I enjoy him as a villain. I think of him as the quintessential Marvel villain. People who got into uh, Marvel through the movies think that it's Loki, but it's no. not. When you talk about Marvel villain, you are talking about Victor Von Doom. And 2015 has not been kind to him. It started with Secret Wars where you get sick of hearing about him even before he shows up. <laughs> And he basically, what happens to him is what happened to Magneto in House of M. The guy gets what he wants and then just sits on his butt for nine issues. Like, nothing happens. And they did this with, ages ago with, remember Emperor Doom? Sure. The whole point was, Doom finally rules the world and find out he has nothing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he's just like, so will I buff my mask today or maybe go mess around with Susan Richards, which... There mm-hmm. was a miniseries... Uh, a couple of years ago, I think, in the Marvel Adventures line, when there was still such a thing called Doctor Doom and the Masters of Evil, where Doctor Doom gathers the Masters of Evil, and they're going to get the reality gems, and, we, and he's going to get his wish, finally. And when he gets his wish, is not the smart thing, is not to take over the world or to destroy Reed Richard. He asks that the last, beast, last beats of his consciousness will be torn away so that he can be truly Doom. Mm. He's oh. like... I don't want to be bothered by this by these human emotion things anymore. Well, that's what Mark Wade did, and, too. And, yeah. and I want to take over the world in my own, you know, with my own abilities, with my own terms, and you know, get it. Wish to be godlike is boring for me. And on top of all that, the movie. Well, <laughs> nobody. No. Listen, that is strike three for trying to adapt Doom, and it's Victor Von Doom. You don't have to work that hard. It, it Why tells, is no one? It tells you something. You have three Fantastic Four movies, and the best one was the Roger Corman one, which really <laughs> that is, had the most should, convincing Doom. It shouldn't be possible. I guess. I'll... Well, I think like Marvel is trying to do, you know, the least, um, uh, the least convincing they can be with their best villain. It's it's a shame. And and it got to the point now where I don't I don't know if he's back after Secret Wars. I haven't seen him anywhere. Well, but it's I'm not like, over. Secret Wars is not, not still not over. <laughs> well, you know that's the big secret. <laughs> the reboot of the preboot in, into the interboot. Secret Wars should have been called Jonathan Hickman's Infinity because it's mm-hmm. gonna last forever. That is true. Right. So I I just I don't want to see Doom anymore, and I never thought that I'd be in that place, but I am. So okay, the Wilson Taylor Award for Best Writer. I'm going to start this off because, oh, okay. because I have to give this to Brian K. Vaughn. <laughs> Private Eye, Paper Girls, Saga, Barrier, We Stand on Guard. This has been the year of Vaughn. And really, when you're talking about a writer like this, what more needs to be said? Every first issue is a gem. Every cliffhanger leaves you on the edge of your seat. Every story has instantly compelling characters and a hook that reels you in. And most importantly... These five books that I've mentioned are completely different. You cannot read Barrier and Saga and tell me that they're anything alike. 
in any kind of way. Paper Pri- Girls is Paper so Girls different. is amazing. Yeah. And and it's nothing like Private Eye. <laughs> it's just these completely different stories and he's doing them all at the same time. So really kudos to Brian K. Yeah. Vaughn and May 2016. Yeah. I want to say more Vaughn, but then he's going to burn himself out. So maybe like this amount of Vaughn uh-huh. And that's, more if he's got it in perf- That's the perfect Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn is also my choice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I didn't right. want to go with the obvious one. Well, <laughs> great. I mean, yeah. some variety. It, it, there has... I didn't want to go with the obvious one also, but there's a reason he's the obvious one. He's the best. Uh, yeah. it's, it's like the Terry Pratchett short story about witches in this world where yeah. Granny Weatherwax always wins and people are like, well, she should let other people win and everybody else is... Well, no. She's because Granny Weatherwax. It's the, it's, it's the contest about who is the best. She is the best. And what can, the last few years, I was, I never gave him the award either in this contest or in the Ali Lon Awards because he always had that one thing. It was Saga. And you know, he's great on one thing, but just one thing. But this year, like you said, he blew out. The Vaughn Awakens. Yeah. And every single one of the things he published is great. You know, the, I we sort of had to nitpick for Eternity Paper Girls to find, you know, well, we can't be all positive. We have to criticize something. So, I don't know, the color on the third panel on the fourth page <laughs> is not as shiny as it should be. Shame. Yeah. Shame. <laughs> so, yeah, Brian K. Vaughn, for the win. Well, mine is also kind of mainstream. Uh, it's Noel Stevenson. Mm. Um because uh, this year came out Nimona, yes. which, I mean, she wrote it before it was a webcomic, but I think webcomics are starting to become more and more, like, popular, and it, so it's so hard to get one published, I feel, and the fact that she could do it was such an amazing story, like, Nimona is so good, um, it's pretty impressive, and also, like, Lumberjanes keep being pretty much perfect, so... Lumberjanes is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like... It's amazing because she's such a young writer artist, and already she has two of her things slotted to be major movies. Mm. <laughs> make it make all of us old folks feeling so lazy. Thor, right, or something? Um, no, no. I hope that that's true. That no. would be amazing. As far as I know, she's in her own thing because she now mm. has enough money and clout to be like. Let me do whatever I want. I don't need to do a series for Marvel to get money. No, she has an she upcoming. Have to. We've talked about this. She has an upcoming young adult graphic. Something novel. about wizards. Yeah, for yeah. wizards, which I ne- I haven't realized up until now if it's a graphic novel or like a painted novel. Do you care? It's Noel Stevenson. Well, Noel Stevenson. Well, I know how she is at comics. I don't know how she is at short story at stories. So you know, uh, she's an amazing talent. I yeah. Nimona was one of my favorite reads of 2015. Right. And, you know, we've gushed about her on the podcast so many times. Um, I, 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 I see great things for her going forward. I feel like Sana Amanat can call her up and be like, so listen, girl, why don't you come down and like, write some, uh, write some comics for us? You know, here are. Whatever uh, you your, want. Take your pick. <laughs> Whatever you want. You know, you want to do runaways? You can do runaways. You want to do anything you want. Just go do it. Uh, and I would be there for that. So. Definitely. Okay. Next one is the Basil Hallward Award for Best Artist. I will start now. Okay. Um, for me, it's Sana Takeda, who now works mm. on Monstrous. Um, I've been waiting for Monstrous for a long time, ever since like uh, Image announced it coming out. Because, uh, first of all, um, I really like Majora Lilu. And also, Sana Takeda's style is so much like manga and anime, which is what brought me into comics in the first place. So, it's really... like interesting to me to see this sort of western style um comic but done in a really um 
Asian sort of way. And uh, I mean, the story itself is amazing so far. Like there are only two issues, maybe. Yeah, three. but the first one is so long. It's yeah, like a book it's, it's like sixty six, seventy yeah. pages. Yeah, and each one is amazingly drawn. Like I was some pages, I just stared for like three minutes just at the art. Yeah, um, because I, I think I've seen Takada stuff before, but I was never going all out for them. You would have seen it, I think, when there was that Heroes for Hire controversy yeah. with Misty Knight. Uh, but I think, like, Monstrous goes a yeah, long way towards I, she, redeeming I was that. Never, I was never blown away, but then first issue of Monstrous is drop it on my shelf, and I'm, wow. wow. Breathtaking. Yeah. Where did she get? She was here all along? How did I not notice? <laughs> That's the twist at the end of the yeah. Shyamalan movie. She was here all along. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna go again with Giant Days. Lisa Trayman, who unfortunately only gave us six issues and bust, she left the series and went back to work as an animator for Disney, I believe, which is, mm. you know, a shame for us, good for her, because she probably makes a lot more money for a lot less work as an storyboard animator than, than as a comic artist. Notoriously a punishing field. But yeah, what six issues they were. Such an amazing balance between cartoonishness and realism. And the little, the little touches when a character gets, you know, depressed and suddenly there's a cloud above her head or when the face grows super large and deformed or the slap... When Esther uh, weaponizes her drama field (laughs) to create drama. Or the slapstick. Slapstick slapstick in comic is very hard because you can see it. It's not like animation. There is no movement. There is no... There shouldn't be a surprise because the reader can see the page as he opens it. She makes it work, which is one of the hardest things to do in comic. Proper slapstick. So, yeah, Lisa Trayman, you know. My pick for Best Artist is J.H. Williams for Sandman Overture. Yes, it was late. You hear that J.H. Williams is on a book you just accept is going to be annual. It's like, (laughs) how many parts are there? Six? I'll see you in 2020. But can you really argue with the end result, right? This was a story that was so atypical for Sandman in that it was this huge, sprawling, cosmic epic, which... Gaiman doesn't really do. There were war in the stars in that series. And Williams, <laughs> but Williams was the perfect fit for that. Not just because he could do the big moments. I mean, obviously you have like these huge sprawling vistas and these stars everywhere and, and all of this craziness going on. You go visit Father, Father Time, Mother Night, all of this, but also the little moments. He manages to do what I think the best artists on Sandman figured out at some point, which is that when you're looking at Dream, at Morpheus, Gaiman may write him as being cold and detached, but he's not. And it's the art that brings out the the humanity in him. Um, I remember it, right before The Kindly Ones, there's the arc where he kills his son, Morpheus. And he just sits on his throne like slumped over. I don't remember who the artist was for that arc, but it's such a powerful image. And that doesn't come through through words. It's only in how he's being drawn. And I think Williams really figured out how to make him seem compelling and human mm. in the tradition of, you know, this character who's J.H. Williams, never my favorite artist to look at, but always the most impressive one. On technical skill alone, he's probably the top of the top of the top yeah. of the tree of comic dumb. And it's always a bit too much for me. I'm, I'm looking at these images like, oh, it's work reading this. Like, where does it start? Where does it end? <laughs> Why is the panel shaped like a tree? Oh, it's the tree of life. Oh, I see what you did there. And you know, oh, I want to rest. I want to read something, not work for it. But, but yeah, it, this is it's, an eight-page spread. You got to give me a couple of days. I can't yeah, get through. It's, no. undeni- it's undeniably impressive. You can't, you cannot fault him for that. Definitely, like I mean, it is a hard work reading it, but it's so worth it. Sometimes it's like when when you want to evaluate his work, you have to go for the trade, because 
I mean, I get it. He's you're sitting there like you know August, September, October, November. Is that is that's six issue yet? mini no. started in the end of 2013. Okay, <laughs> okay, but that but if you take the book off the shelf and you read Sandman Overture, you get it. And I feel like you know he's one of those artists who I can't fault him for technical skills or for taking as long as he does because you know I I don't know how George Perez did it on a regular basis, but J.H. Williams he's got the game down. Uh, the Proud Mary Award for Best New Ongoing Island by Brendan Graham, Amarius, and many, many other talented mm. people at L. Island is the image anthology of weird and exciting stuff. What I like about Island is that it simplify, simplify, I just <laughs> invented the word. It, it's a showcase for everything that should be good about comic. Both as a presentation of art and as an object of itself, because in this age of five dollar issues of thirty mm-hmm. pages, it's an eight dollar per issue one hundred pages plus where you get complete stories and you get ongoing serials and you get text pieces and you get a, the right kind of mix between familiar artists again Brandon Graham and Marius to people you haven't heard about before, but after you read one of their contribution, you're saying, "Well, I want to read more of this guy i I had no idea who uh Will Kirkby was, but when he did the opening pages for issue three, I'm, well, now I've got to own all this stuff. And I, when I when I was in England, I actually went and searched his booth and I'm like, give me all your stuff. You're amazing. <laughs> or Ludrow, who did the oh, bullet, uh, Daggerproof Mommy. What a great name, Daggerproof <laughs> Mommy. He's amazing. I don't know where Brendan can find these people, where he and Emerius find these people, but they do saintly work of moving the comic field forward. Every issue is a surprise. And I miss the days of being surprised by every new comic that I've read. Uh, I, once again, return to Monstrous. Um, partly because I was waiting for so long for this series, but Thank also you, because... Image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also because the first issue was, like you said, just a whole book by itself, probably. And it was such an amazing like exposition for the story going forward. Um, and it's so hunting. Like The characters are so... Obviously, so like abused and um, broken, but also really strong. And also, all of them are female, which I think is really f- female and non like obviously Asian and black and you know like. There non- were so many ways that could have gone wrong. Yeah. When you look at like if it had been any other writer, but because or any other artist. because it's two Asian American writer like artists, um, they do it so well, and also like it's so graphic at some points and so like, hauntingly terrifying, um, but in such a... Well, like, it's not meant to shock you, it's meant to, to get you into the, the environment, the, you know, the terrible environment this book takes place in, and I think it's really... I usually don't like too too, ma- too much graphic details on those kind of things, but in this book, it was just yeah, really after, well done. After Monstrous, all those PG-13 dystopias kind of look insulting, like, <laughs> oh, it's it's the terrible future enslaved world where people all have perfect yeah. makeup <laughs> and their hair is right. Dear Katniss, you think you have it bad? And they have all their limbs, which yeah. is <laughs> yeah. none, no No, people. no, no, this is how a dystopia looks like. <laughs> like oh, yeah. Proper. Yeah. I mean, it, it had been coming for quite a while. These image expos where they're looking like five years into the future. Like, Let me get my crystal ball and I'll tell you what will happen. But I'm glad that it's finally out. It is a tremendously good book. My pick, though, is Gem and the Holograms from IDW. Oh, yeah. Mm. This is by Kelly Thompson and Sophie Campbell. And, like, look, I have to respect Marvel for up, upping their game post-reboot. But there was no way, from my perspective, that anyone was going to beat Gem and the Holograms 
in terms of what Thompson and Campbell are doing. This was a book that had everything against it. Unlike IDW's other licensed properties like Transformers or Ghostbusters, I don't think that there was this huge well of nostalgia for Gem. And there was never, because there was never any Gem reboot, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Transformers, every couple of years since the 80s, a new mm-hmm. generation got to know them through a, car- a new cartoon or a TV show, yeah. and Gem didn't have that. I, I think the reason for that is the same reason that there weren't that many uh, She-Ra Princess of Power. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, <laughs> She-Ra Princess of Power reboots was because that this was a very curious case of a cartoon that where the writers seemed to want to go towards feminism in terms of their characters, but never quite figured out what barriers they were bumping up against. So Jem was a rock star whose entire life revolved around her clothes and her love triangle with herself and her boyfriend. (laughs) And the misfits were a group of criminals who were singing about self-reliance, getting to the top, ambition, being your own woman. Yes, the most evil things of them all. (laughs) Like very mixed messages in this show. And I do feel like that might have contributed to why it never caught on in terms of nostalgia. Like, why did IDW wait until now to go for that? Because it doesn't seem like an obvious pick. And in comes Kelly Thompson and Sophie Campbell, and they take it apart. They build it from the ground up. And I've read that opening arc twice. I don't know how they did it. Campbell's visuals and the way that Thompson characterizes not just the uh, gem and, and her sisters, but also the villains and how they play into it and... The, the the modernizing, like bringing in social media as an aspect without making it seem so incredibly clumsy. And if you want an Old example of that. Old people writing the, Twitter, the most the painful movie, thing. The Gem and the Holograms mm-hmm. movie was exactly what you... <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's not... You old people don't know what Twitter means. Stop talking about it. I, I feel like it was specifically built for 2015. Like, when I think about 2000... If 2015 was a series, it was Gem and the Hologram. Yeah. Like, with the terms of, you know... Huge, huge uh, rockstar bands and and social media and also actually the return of like eighties and nineties clothing, which <laughs> did happen this year. So I feel like all of that also contributed to and a real push for diversity. I yeah. mean, look, I and, and this is how you can tell that the book supersedes the original. So two of the characters in Gem and the Holograms end up having a romance, right? They're these lesbian characters. They get together. It's uh, Kimber and Stormer. You would think that fans of the original would start clutching their pearls in the way that they always do, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to a later category. Um, but it didn't happen. Everyone was like, sure, why not? You uh, know. I think one of the most important elements of the success of Gem and the Holograms is the Campbell designs. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. the characters have all sorts of bodies, female characters, who have all sorts of appearances, and nobody ever gives anybody else trouble for it. Nobody like... Well, you're the fat one, so you should feel bad about it, or you should have an arc about, you know, feeling good about yourself. No, no, no. You know, she looks how she looks, and she doesn't care. They're past that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she, she's like, yeah, I'm beautiful, and nobody, nobody gives nobody else trouble for it. Yeah, I mean, it's like Stormer yeah, has. That's how these people look. Deal with it. Yeah, and, and she's a rock star. Yeah, I mean, the misfits start the story having already made it to the top, yeah. and they're running around like with mohawks and 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 just crazy outfits and everyone's like they're amazing yes and campbell's art is 
I mean, it's Sophie yeah. Campbell. You know, there's also a, uh, we she's always give a shout out to Emma Vichelli who replaced her for an R yeah. because yeah. these and she are was fine. Yeah, these are large mm-hmm. shoes to feel. I think she was better than Ivana. I think Emma Vichelli did a great work on it. You know, more comedy and character based than than Campbell's large and in charge kind of thing. But you know, great art choices all around. And this is, and I have to admit, like. IDW could have screwed this up very easily. Oh, it, so easily. There are so many ways this could have gone wrong. And the fact that in spite of everything, it is just such a joy to read makes it my pick for 2015. Okay. Uh, the Troyer Award for Best Miniseries? I'm going to go with the Autour Sister Bambi. That's the second series of the Autour, uh, I don't know, series of series. It's about this producer, Nathan T-Rex, who in the first series was the biggest producer in Hollywood, but sort of lost his greatness. And he decided, well, in order to achieve greatness, I will make the biggest and most successful serial killer movie possible. And I will make it very realistic by kidnapping a serial killer and forcing him to do my, you know, do it better. Do it realistically. That was the first first series. And in the second series, yeah. And the second series, he's kicked out of Hollywood because he killed several thousands of people towards the end of it. And he's trying to do a B-movie exploitation movie using actual uh, Nazi gold and black magic. Oh, God. God. And it's... Who did this? uh, Rick Rick Spears and James Callahan. Rick Spears, the writer, James (sighs) Callahan. It's completely over the top, and it's the blackest of comedies. Like, really, some of this stuff is vile in, in a funny way. And what's amazing is that it's sort of like, oh, they can't do it any further. Yes, they can. But towards the middle, it actually finds its heart. Like, there's this sub-arc with one of the assistants on the film who's a transgender. And, you know, and the producer's like, oh, I'm going to show it live. You know, I'm going to show you doing your surgery on screen. And everybody's like, no, you idiot. It's not your story. You cannot make this your story. And I'm like, oh, there's actually... Heart and go. the message oh, to this yeah. story in the middle of all this black humor, you know, the writer is standing up and saying, "No, no, 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 stop." Some, some stop. things you, you don't joke yeah, about. No, no, it's you can joke about it, but no, it's yeah, not. It's not your story. Exactly. It's his story. Stop trying. And the end of it wow. was just such an amazing, powerful piece of like metaphoric rebirth, which I was that the end is one of the weirdest things I've read this year and this is the year I've read Alishkot mm. ending three series <laughs> at once. So, <laughs> it's like. Yeah, so the Otur sister Bambi. Amazing for all the right and wrong reasons. I'll check it out. Um, mine would be, well, again, the obvious choice for me, I guess. Agent Carter, actually, mm-hmm. going back to TV. Um, I mean, it's, it's also like there were so many ways to screw it up. Because like writing a woman in the 50s, I mean, like that could have gone bad. Really bad. Easily. Easily bad. And it didn't. And it didn't because of wonderful writing that allowed... Peggy Carter, you know, being her, her own woman without being, like, Captain America's... So I think it actually play on her not being Captain America, uh, only love interest. And also Hayley Atwell, which is such an amazing actress. Whoever cast her needs to get, like, all of the awards. Or, exactly. Just, like, just give them to her, like Adele, you know, standing with Ava. <laughs> all of it, because, wow. She's am- Actually, she looks a lot like the, the girl from the, the new Star Wars movie. They look a lot the same. They do. do. Um, And also the amazing cast of character, like Jarvis. He's also such an an amazing counterpart to her. Like, he's playing the character that usually women play, and she's playing the character that usually men play, and they do it so well. Um, 
and also uh, Angie, her supposedly non uh, non romantically uh, involved friend, uh, who is also once again like the entire supporting cast, just like in Jessica Jones and in um, Daredevil, really makes the show what it was, and uh, and. I'm looking forward to season two. I mean, I I adored Agent Carter when it came out, not just because it was a break from the mediocrity of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but also because you never hear about what Lois Lane does after Superman dies. Nobody's interested. And then all of a sudden, I remember one of the last scenes of the first season is, you know, she's standing on the bridge and says, you know, goodbye. But you know that season's two coming, so she's going to go do her own thing. and, And she... She had this whole life after being, quote-unquote, Captain America's An girlfriend. amazing life. Like, we see her in Ant-Man being, you know, this huge, like, thing in S.H.I.E.L.D. to build S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. from the ground up. In The Winter Soldier, you know, when they come into the old S.H.I.E.L.D. base, her portrait is on yeah. the wall. It's like, this was someone who was Nick Fury before Nick Fury. Like, Captain America, for her, is her woman in the fridge. Yeah. Like uh, He was fridged for her pain. Exactly. You gotta love it. <laughs> Literally fridged. Yeah. <laughs> So my miniseries was a comic, and but it's it's a special comic. Mm. So my pick for best miniseries was Oak Hill Strike Uh-oh. by Max <laughs> Bemis and Logan Farber. This was from Boom. I think that one of the most significant problems in the industry today, especially with the big two, is this lack of fresh talent. You know, the people who are architects, the one who are writing the crossovers and determining the direction of these characters. They've been writing the same old crap for 10, 20, 30 years. It's not a mark on whatever talent they do or don't have. It's just that they're in a certain framework. You know, they grew up in a certain time. They're programmed to write a certain way. And in the words of Dean Pelton, we don't see our patterns until they're all laid out in front of us. And here comes Max Bemis. He's the lead singer of the band Say Anything, writing a story in which Killstrike the 90s, 90s to ever 90s, just shows up and throws a bucket of cold water in our faces because this is a parody that is topical. Rob Liefeld is writing Deadpool, Deadpool for Marvel. Frank Thierry is back. Frank Miller is back. You know, these are the writers or the type of writers who created people like Killstrike. And so that miniseries, maybe it's just my own personal sense of schadenfreude. It's just like finally somebody is calling them out on their nonsense because we are heading back into the 90s and I will not go. (laughs) You know, just we're going back towards hologram foil covers, pouches, 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 pouches. And and Killstrike was exactly sort of the wake up call. It's like finally someone is coming in. And, you know, Bemis is not a comic writer by trade. He hasn't been around for 20 years and remembers when Alan Moore was sane. So it, it was just really like a breath of fresh air and saying, stop and look at how, at the patterns that you are getting close to falling into again. And hopefully we won't, but I'm not optimistic about that. But Oak Hill Strike, and it, I mean, even in its own terms, outside of its meta commentary, it's just a fun book. Um, you know, there are moments there where this gigantic guy shows up at his the son of his creator's house looking for vengeance against who he doesn't know it's just you know that's what he's drawn to do and meets his wife who's this tiny woman (laughs) and he's like why is she so small and wearing a bathrobe oh you know the women in his world just being the 90s wear very unfortunate clothing 
and he introduces him as Chaim or or Moshe. I don't remember. <laughs> My like gym instructor, his, his gym instructor cousin, uh, Jewish. Just all of this mash of awkward, hilarious moments, and I, I very much enjoyed. Woody Allen meets Schwarzenegger in comic dumb. Yes, except without Mia Farrow. Um, so. I would like to call out the Arkham Asylum Award for Best Breakout Talent of 2015. These are the new blood that Killstrike is looking for, so to speak. Um, who's your pick? Tom King. Well, technically he broke out in 2014 with Nightwing, but Nightwing was for me, you know, it was his and some, someone else was writing it at the time, right? Uh, I, he was co-writing it. Writing with uh, Team... Team... The guy who did... Uh, Tim Seeley? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, they're also working together yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was saying, well, you know, it's probably Team Silly's thing, and Tom King is sort of lending his name, and he was in the CIA, so DC was thinking, oh, we can slap his name, and it'll look topical or whatever. But this year, he also launched Omega Man and Vision, and no, 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 no. He's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And Omega Man and Vision and Nightwing are not my favorite series, but it's amazing to me that somebody could be like that in... This type of market writing a series which is basically his own expression via B and C and in the case of vision I think F level characters mm-hmm. uh, no Omega man sorry vision is more familiar nobody cares about the Omega man nobody, nobody cares know. about vision either yeah well he was in a movie at least so so he, you know Omega man a series about space adventures doing shooty stuff originally becoming this large uh, discussion because the Omega man here are self-proclaimed terrorists. But their enemies are so horrible, and it sort of ends up in a discussion of, well, can you cheer for them? Who should you cheer for? Who's right and who's wrong? And how, how awful can you be while your target is just? He actually makes this a discussion point in a comic book series made by DC Comic. That, that shouldn't have happened. Logically, somebody should have told him, <laughs> no, 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 you can't do that. Kids read these days, you can't call somebody a hero and make them a terrorist at the same line. Wait, they can be both? I, I don't... Too much it's, to compute. And also, it's, and he's also very formalistic. Every issue, he tries to do something, like a mini experiment with the form, like the Nightwing uh, issue in the desert, where they're basically, they're walking through a dead landscape, the whole issue. It should be boring as hell. It's not. Obviously, it's not. He's holding a baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's baby. the best thing that ever happened. And all the time, uh, Midnighter is like shouting at his ear, like, <laughs> well, you're gonna fall first. You, logically, you're gonna fall first. You're gonna fall first. Just give me the baby. And, Dick Grayson keeps <laughs> mm-hmm. on walking. So I don't always uh, love his stuff, but I, oh, but I love what he represents. I love what he's standing for in this medium, at this form, at this time. Yeah, Tom King is my pick as well. Uh, and exactly, <laughs> exactly for that reason of what he's doing, the thing that I find so interesting about him is that it's not that they gave him Batman, right? It's not that they gave him Superman or someone that would have been relatively easy to do because, you know, it's just another interpretation. This is someone who is taking characters like Vision, like the Omega Men, like, to a certain extent, Grayson, post-Nightwing, so to speak. <laughs> characters who usually get the short end of the stick when it comes to using them in, in certain capacities. Nightwing, certainly, by the end of his identity as Nightwing, was not having a good time. No. It was not a good time to be Dick Grayson. And... King has really reinvented these characters. I mean, I, when I read Vision, I don't know what I was expecting. It wasn't that. And I'm reading it and it's like, 
Do I actually want to subscribe to an ongoing about the Vision? Who? <laughs> How did that happen? Even in the Age of Ultron, he's not the most interesting thing on the screen, and that's like his big debut. And here, King has like this really interesting angle, and it's he the goes. The Vision for is it. written by Philip K. Dick. It's the Vision as written by someone with Vision. <laughs> there you go. You know, he he has that elusive quality that not a lot of writers have, but which definitely makes him break through talent, which is he knows how to reinvent things. Yeah, he writes as if it's Vertigo 1989, mm. as if, well, here are these characters, you can do whatever you want with them, and he does whatever he wants, yeah, so and it's th- something interesting. So the thing about Dick Grayson, like, I didn't feel anyone really know writer has understood him after the reboot and for the first time I feel like someone understands him so my current theory is that DC forgot that they're doing Grayson <laughs> and that's why you know it's such a good series I and once they realize it's... then the deal is like people are apparently liking a series not that enough I... potatoes <laughs> no. not enough potatoes no. people are apparently liking a series that, I, that I'm responsible for on the internet but that's not possible must be a mistake carry on uh, yeah whoever you sure? your, whoever your name is Mr. Although Queen. Tom King was in the CIA, so if there was ever an opportunity to make exactly. someone disappear, I'm not saying he should make Dan DiDio disappear, but you know, if they found him in the vents a couple of weeks later... I wouldn't mind. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't cry. So my pick was also King, but now I'm going to change it, because <laughs> no, I don't want to... Go for no, it. No, I'm going to change Unanimous. it. Because um, uh, I was really um, debating between him and Ming Joe Helen Chen. Uh, who is, um, she did a couple of issues on Gotham Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a, an artist, and I think, like, her stuff on Gotham Academy was gorgeous. Like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Disney picks her up to mm. do, like, storyboard. Disney, please the, don't pick her up. We need to, more comic artists. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're snatching all our good people. They're taking we need all like... of them away. The guy who does Black Shed, you know, is busy at Disney some of the time, so that's why we only get, like, one Black Shed every <sighs> two years. <sighs> Um, she's also going to do an issue in Batgirl, which oh. I don't really care for Batgirl much, but this issue I'm going to read. Um, her stuff is just so vibrant and like, it's really amazing that she's only started this year. Um, right. so I hope she's going to be like the new Babstar. Um, yes. Especially since Babstar is, uh, she's barely moving on soon. Yeah. So, uh, so we need someone looking to replace for a replacement. Her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Poi Award for Best Performance by an Animal. Uh, I'm gonna go with a webcomic. Okay. A long running one and a long running character, but well deserved one this year. Mr. Scruffy from Order of the Stick. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard to make a character yes. who's a non anthropomorphized, non talking, non thinking cat just acting and in a, as a stick figure. They make it work. Uh, he makes it work, the writer artist. <laughs> Mr. Scruffy is hilarious. He's angry, he's violent, and he's only nice for one person who's the worst person on the team. <laughs> the worst person ever. Balker Bitterleaf, whose evil can be measured only by kilo Nazis. I mean, really, when you think about it, hasn't Mr. Scruffy been through hell? Like, his hometown was burned to the ground, and his, his former master died dishonorably. Uh, throughout the last year or so, the I don't remember his name. Rich Berlio. Rich Berlio. He's doing like a sort of mini arc for the team of pets of the characters because <laughs> you have Mr. Scruffy, you have the Raven Familiar, and now you have the dinosaur turned into a li- pet lizard. Uh, yep. Blood Blood Roar the Exterminator, <laughs> something like that. He's a tiny lizard now, but you know he's called Blood Blood something the the Exterminator, which of course Belcar would call yeah. him that. So I, I so if Rich Berlio wants to do like a sub series or a spin off with the animals. Mr. Scruffy and the Pet Avengers, whatever, yeah. versus the Pet <laughs> Avengers, go for it. 
in general, there should be more comics about animals. Only animals who needs people. Yeah, who fight evil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, mine would be Anthony from Ant-Man. Uh, who I felt was the best character in Ant-Man, uh, <laughs> without saying anything. And I'm looking forward to seeing him as the new Winter Soldier in Ant-Man 2. Um, <laughs> Anthony, who the fuck is Anthony? Yes! Oh, and you know, I hate bugs, but that was, that was, that was cute. <laughs> he was. Um, so I went with Otto Fellatio Dragon from Saga. <laughs> Brian K. Vaughn's mind is a very interesting place to visit, but I would not want to live there. This was a side gag in the last uh, collection of Saga in which, there's no nice way to say this, uh, they need dragon semen for a healing spell. Unfortunately, male dragons are rare, and then they find one. And he's uh, uh, doing I'm not, I don't think about Brian K. Vaughn's mind, I'm thinking of... Fiona Staples' hand because she had to draw sketches of it. And I'm trying to imagine, like the look on her face when she got the script. <laughs> so there's this dragon and he's doing this to himself. What? Listen, Brian, she, I've written a lot of crazy stuff for you, but this is. Just- I would like to see their <laughs> mail correspondence and stuff like that. No, and the first sketch is like no, not enough, not enough, <laughs> yeah. and then too bigger, much, bigger, bigger, and then she gives him like a triple fold page and like, okay, I think you might have gone a little too far. Let's reel it back just a little bit. But, I mean... That's an amazing side <laughs> gag in such a serious series. It's a double-page spread, and you're looking... And then, of course, what sells it is the little girl's line immediately afterwards. Like, well, that's definitely a boy. It's like, well, there you go. Uh, so, I I just... It's a side gag where I had to put the book down and laugh for a couple of minutes before I kept going. And then people ask you, what are you laughing about? And you couldn't tell them because yes. you would so get thrown away dragon. from whatever... You're thrown away from your church. Like, I don't know how to complete that sentence. That guy is the sort of serious you can't read if you're not alone in your room. (laughs) Alone with the door closed. Very true. Uh, The People Who Need People Awards for Best Relationship. I'm not a big relationship guy in fiction. I usually, I don't read books for, you know, character romancing character B and there's this triangle and, or, I don't know, other, any geometric form. But there is one that I love for years and still love today. Chromdom and Rewind from Transformers Modern Meets the Eye, and yes, this is a romance between two gay giant war machine robots, which shouldn't work, by all I accounts. I don't see any problem. No, it shouldn't <laughs> work because when you say, like, yes, romance between, but it works, and there was a moment a year ago when one of them got separated, and the last thing they said, like, I'm sorry, I love you. And Aww. I cried. And I cried. I, I shouldn't cry. In Transformers. <laughs> In Transformers, I shouldn't cry. And this year they got back together. Michael Bay could never. Yeah. And this year they got back together. Yes, yes. Aww. I love you so much. Be together forever. And they can be together forever because, again, they're immortal. They're immortal. Yes. yes. Oh, that's so cute. And there was some revelations regarding uh, Chromdom's earlier relationship, which I won't spoil because Sean is about to read the series. Yes. And you should too. And all their listeners should too. <laughs> because we have this sort of revelation about his past quote-unquote Transformer boyfriend because they have this complex term for it in Transformer language. Mm. And about how he got over past relationship, which is heartbreaking and mm. very disturbing at the same time. It's moving to the top of my to-do mm. list, I'm telling you. I, I'm very So yeah, Chromdom and Rewind. Um, I feel like romance is a very hard thing to do in most comics because most... I don't know, it just never gets done right, but uh, in Fresh Romance, it does mm. get done right. Um, especially Molly and Justine from the first issue, uh, written by Kate Lath and Ariel Jabalanis. Wh- which story was that? School Spirit? The, uh, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. 
um, two lesbian uh, girls um, who need to hide their relationship, so they act as if they're interested in the same guy, who also has his own relationship to hide, <laughs> so it works out well. Um, I just, I, there was just something so simple and yet really moving about this story. It's just, it was a short story, and um, but just it was really well done and not something I usually see in comic books, so... That's my pick. We weren't really down with Fresh Romance when it came out, but we're sort of, I at least, I'm glad that it's there. I supported yeah. the Kickstarter, I published it, publicized it. I I wasn't a big fan of the actual anthology when it came out because I thought the format was a bit lackluster because they were doing yeah. the yeah. same, It's the, it was the same three stories three times in a row, so if you happen to didn't like one of them, well... Tough yeah. luck. You're stuck yeah. with it. We both really liked the Ruby equation from yeah. that same story, but then afterwards, like, School Spirit, something about it didn't... It didn't quite click, click for, for me, us. but though, but I do remember that Malia and Justine were, you know, they were just so adorable, yeah. and the way that they were passing notes to the same guy, and everyone's like, "Wait, what?" And then I think Malia's fa- Malia has two fathers, yeah. and they're like, "Why are you dating a human? You have like you're going somewhere." Else. It's just like this really interesting dynamic of relationships between. Yeah, all even if characters. I don't like it, I like the fact that it exists. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So my pick is actually related to a previous category of mine. Uh, I chose Midnighter and Dick Grayson from Midnighter and also sometimes Grayson. What sells me here is that Orlando and King seem to have this game of one-upsmanship between each other in terms of how close these two male characters can get to sex without actually crossing the line. So Orlando has Midnighter recognizing Dick by the shape of his butt. And then in Grayson, Dick's like, I can't charm Helena to, to get what I want, but I know someone that my charms will work on. And then Orlando has them fighting thugs in a Russian sauna, half naked. And it, the brilliance here is that it's the kind of flirtatious banter that you do usually see in spy thrillers, but not in this way. For two reasons. First of all, because it's a relationship that will never be realized. I'm sorry, girls of Tumblr, you write, you do beautiful artwork, but it's not gonna happen. Diane Nelson will throw herself from the highest building in Warner Brothers before she allows that. <laughs> but, it is sort of fun to see the interchange between them and the way that Midnighter is openly flirting with him and the way that Grayson is playing him. And both King and Orlando, I think, are taking that relationship in interesting places. I'm not, I'm not reading Midnighter right now. Did they bring Apollo back? As the jealous ex-boyfriend, because that would be an interesting dynamic. He's there. You just don't see him. Like, he is the presence that shadows everything, Mm. which I'm glad, because I was afraid when they rebooted it that they would just sweep him under the rug. Because I sort of want to see him, like, hovering about (laughs) Dick Grayson and the letter fight, and, like... It's like, excuse me! Growing angrier and angrier by the minute. Are you fighting? Are you sure you're (laughs) fighting that guy? And the brilliant thing is that I think both Orlando and King are aware of the somewhat Mm. uncomfortable connotation of the fact that Midnighter is a gray bat, is the gay Batman in the world that didn't have Batman. So this flirting is sort of like, Dick, what would your foster father say? Well, he he doesn't remember himself. Exactly. So (laughs) So it, it, it really is sort of this fun, it's sort of like if you were watching The Man from Uncle, except... Instead of flirting with Gabriella, Solo and Napoleon were flirting with each other. And just, you know that it's not going to happen. But the fact that they're both fine with it and that it propels the action forward. Because ultimately, when they are fighting all these villains, they do work well together. 
So and, and you don't usually see that. I like mm -hmm. the 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 freshness of that angle. When Grace, when they first announced Grayson and that he's gonna be, you know, like a super secret spy or whatever, I was joking with a friend about him being, you know, the new like Black Widow, like with you know S shots everywhere and stuff. And they did <laughs> they it. They, did. they actually did. That is so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one King of, has not been. It was one yeah. of my biggest regrets because I, when they announced it, I was I was. Immediately cynical. Oh, it's gonna be terrible. Yeah, because me the too. end of the previous run was horrible. horrible. It yeah. ended on such a it's poor gonna note. It's gonna be terrible. I don't know who that Tom King guy is. It's probably awful. No, no, no. Tom, I'm sorry, Tom King. If I had a time travel machine, I would go back and slap that Tom Shapiro in the face. <laughs> like yeah. you fool! You have no idea what you that which you speak of. It's just a fantastic relationship, and I hope that it continues going forward. Um, What's our next category? Our next category is the Pretty Woman Award for Best Character Redesign. Gem and the Holograms, Sophie Campbell. Mm. Uh, Sean said it. Uh, th there is nothing more needed to be said. Well, Sophie Campbell can redesign and should redesign everything and anything under the sun, including real life. She made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles look majestic, <laughs> which, again, shouldn't work. So, And Gem and the Holograms is a much fer more fertile ride for her because they are not four identical-looking giant turtles. Yeah. So yeah, it's amazing to. Look it's also at. a genre like the punk mm. genre uh -huh. and the sort of neo punk that that they're going for is perfect for what Campbell does with like the flowing hair and the mohawks and and all of these outfits. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, mine is the DC Bombshells redesigns, mm. which were just um, gorgeous to see. Like I wanted to cosplay every single one of them, um, and also really tied in, you know, with them being strong women, but like with the aesthetic of the fifties without. It actually being the 50s, so right. great. It's like Rosie the Riveter if she had been a superhero. Exactly. Which, for all we know, she might have been. She probably was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I went with Nicola Scott's redesign of Vampirella. Look, it's Vampirella. I know this is going to sound incredibly shallow, but this is a character I could never take seriously only because of the way she's she dressed. It was <laughs> ridiculous. She had, like... Two suspender things and a thong, and it just—it—I—it's I, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in comics, and I've been around for a while. I've seen a lot, and in comes Nicola Scott, and she takes this character and she puts her in combat boots, short shorts, buckled shirt, uh, tight ponytail. She looks like a warrior. She looks like the kind of person who would go toe to toe with vampires, werewolves, whatever, and put up one hell of a fight. And I never thought that I would say, "Sure, let's read Vampirella," because you know, how do you walk up to someone? And say, I'd like the issue of Vampirella. <laughs> uh, would you like the wipes with that or not? Uh, it's just gross. And, and this new version looks amazing. And I never thought that anyone would bother to take the time Dynamite, to take a character like Vampirella Dynamite and say, did, let's make her real. Yeah, Dynamite did a real effort this year to try and advance their female-led line because up until now, all their female-centric titles were that kind of titles, the mm -hmm. one that were... One step away from being a Xenoscape comic, yeah. which nobody yeah. wants to be. But this year they're like, no, we're doing a big crossover featuring all our female characters written and drawn only by women. And we're going to redesign them to look less embarrassing. And apparently it works. Yeah. I'm not, I wasn't the, the biggest three, fan of, so, of, Sword of so, Swords of Sorrow. Swords of Sorrow. Which I was like, eh, on and off, but I appreciate the effort. See, Swords of Sorrow, I think the reason that doesn't work is because they still have the old looks. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing like Red Sonia. But I'm no, sorry, like, I it, can't it didn't take work Red Sonya seriously it with the chainmail. No, it didn't work because it was just a series of they meet, they fight, they team up, which mm -hmm. I've seen yeah. enough of that. You know, but I mean, of those three redesigns, hmm. Scott's version of Vampirella, I mean, just looking at her, I was like, who is this person? I want to know what she does. How does she do this thing? What's her story? Like, tell me more. And then you don't even realize that it's Vampirella until they're like, 
Th- that's who it is. Really? Vampirella, okay. I think designs, especially with female characters, is so important because um, so many people are just used to, you know, immediately judging, um, especially women, on what they wear. So, like, the first thing that people should do when they design a female character is think about that. Like, it's it's okay to design them, you know, with sexy look or whatever, but think about what that represents in your character. So, yeah. I mean, uh, just, like, speaking personally in terms of... M- I know Vampirella, but I yeah. would never read a Vampirella book because you look at it and just based on the way she's dressed, you assume that it's trash. Because she looks mm-hmm. like something out of the 1980s, like Boris, uh, what was his name? Boris Villaggio. Boris Villaggio would be like, oh, that's my girl. Even and Boris Villaggio wouldn't know that. Who? I mean, she looks like something out of heavy metal. Who has time for that? Really? She And, you know, that also lends itself to the stereotypes of what comics are, used uh, to who be. Who reads yeah. them. And who reads them. And it's just like, you know... They had their time. Let's do something new. Let's, you know. Let's give them pants. Let's give Red Sonia something that can actually stop a sharp object. Uh, why not? You know, she might survive for more than 10 seconds. I mean, I just think that's great. So our next category is the Nicolas Cage Award for Best Adaptation. This is TV movie adaptation of a comic book. And there have been just a bounty of really great adaptations this year. But I have to give it to Ant-Man. And the reason is, in terms of quality, there's no question in my mind that the Netflix shows are superior. But I confer this award upon Ant-Man just because there was never a Marvel adaptation that went through all nine layers of hell and then went digging into Mephisto's backyard in terms of how easily this could have been a complete and utter disaster. From Edgar Wright leaving to Peyton Reed getting rewritten, and then in comes... Um, I'm blanking out on the main actor's name, even though I... Paul I Rudd. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd contributing Emo- to the script. Eternal man, Paul Rudd. <laughs> and you never want... Like, who lets actors start writing dialogue? Maybe it would have saved the Star Wars prequels, but we're not talking about those. Um <laughs> You know, it, it, it sounded like such a mess. And because we're living in, you know, the age of the internet where we know everything and every time there's a news item, everybody knows about it, you start feeling a disturbance in the force. And when you, when we felt that way about the Fantastic Four, it turned out to be true. All those stories about how Josh Trank was going to ruin everything and the actors were terrible and da, 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 it all turned out to happen. But then there was Ant-Man, which when you watch it, it's not the most revelatory Marvel movie, it's a phase one movie at the end of phase two. So you do feel that it's sort of, well, here's another origin story. And just give give Hope the suit. Just give it to her. She's better at it, but that's fine. Okay, I love Paul Rudd. It's okay. This movie could have turned out to be a complete and utter wreck. And the fact that when you watch it, it's fun, it's enjoyable, this, the the story is great, you, you can see why it didn't work for Wright, mm-hmm. because he would have taken it out into the ether... And I'm betting, like, you know, what it, I know that what they, one of the things that they added, for example, is that scene where Peggy Carter shows up as an yeah. older woman. They added that. He wasn't into connectivity with other films. So the fact that it really does manage to hold its own and it has a great cast, uh, unf- not a very compelling villain, but, you know, go find someone who can compare to Loki. That's, that's just not <laughs> going to happen. Um, so for overcoming all of those obstacles, where Fox failed with exactly the same kind of train wreck feeling, I feel like they deserve the award. Best adaptation of 2015. 
I'm going to the other side of the globus uh, with One Punch Man. <laughs> I told oh, you. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, like, I read the manga a while back. I haven't been following it for, for a while. Um, but the anime is just such a joy to, well, like, it's you, so you should much tell our fun. listeners who probably don't yeah, know what so One Punch Man is. One Punch Man is an anime about this guy called Saitama, um, who one day decides he is done with his boring life as a salesperson or whatever, and he starts training and to be a superhero. And he trains for a year. And all, f- and two things happen. He gets to be the most powerful man alive, and all of his hair falls out, and he becomes completely bald. Are these things related? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes that's the price he had to pay for being uh, the most powerful oh. p- person alive. But being the most powerful person alive is lonely because every time the- he only adds to to do one punch to. To kill, the whatever. name is literal. Yeah, there is never any punch, problem right. that you can't solve with, with one, one punch, punch, and usually it's a weak punch. It's like, bang. Bang, yeah. yeah. I really need to watch this. The most, you're, you're the most epic me. fight in the series, in the first season, ends with him saying, well, now I'm going to give you a serious punch. <laughs> that, that's the name yeah. of his special attack. I'm going to punch <laughs> you seriously <laughs> now. And that ends the season. Wow. Um, so then, like, and in this universe, they have, like, this superhero association where you have to sign up. So you have, like, different mm-hmm. ranks. So you have, like, A, A, A rank. It's like S, A, A B, C. Yeah. And so when he and his, um, apprentice, Janice, who is a robot bent on killing the person who killed his entire family. Um, so he wants to learn from his master, Saitama. Uh, <laughs> this sounds delightful. It's amazing. It's like the anime that's going to save anime. Mm. All right. Like, yeah. And I'm so he only gets to be C-rank because he bombed his written exam because he's not a very bright person. <laughs> uh, and no one believes he's as strong as he is. So he gets called being a fake superhero, oh. even though he's the most powerful man alive. Yeah. Uh, One Punch Man, directed by uh, Shingo Notsumo. Yeah. Notsumo, by the way. Uh, based on a webcomic by a guy called... One. That's yeah, the name that's of the, the art name. writer artist. One. Yeah, it was a webcomic, then it got adapted into yeah. a manga, and now it's adapted into oh an anime. Oh my god. It's also my choice. I discovered it again thanks to Maya <laughs> and recommended it to anybody who and everybody and perfectly right. What's amazing in One Punch Man for me is that it counters one of the criticism I always hear about Superman as a character that you cannot do an interesting story about the most powerful person alive. Yeah. And here it's even more he makes Superman look like regular Joe because literally nobody even pretends throughout the series that there's anything that will cause him any hint of trouble. And the plot the complications of the plot are always when he's gonna get there and what happens to the people around him. Yeah. He's and he's always he's always so chillax. It's um, it's like that Frank Whiteley All Star Superman cover where he's sitting on the cloud and is the most chill dude on earth because nothing can hurt him. Like after Sa- Samurai? Even more than that. Saitama yeah. is always relaxed. You know, this giant monster comes out and has this huge piece. I'm going to destroy all of humanity. And he's looking at, you know, oh, there's this sale offer in the paper right now. Yeah. And then he just lifts a finger and the monster goes away. And it's not only a humor thing. It is hilarious because he he takes it chillingly and everybody else acts like a stereotypical anime super serious <laughs> Like, like she, Mayan said, he has this psychic called Janus who's a cyborg and he's very serious and I'm going to avenge my master and I must become uh. stronger. Yeah. And, and he, and he doesn't care. But there's also rare moments of heart in it. Like during one episode, he stops a giant monster after a series of heroes tried and failed. And everybody in the crowd starts calling, you know, you're loser heroes and you're, were completely unnecessary. And then just to help these, uh, less strong heroes, 
he has this he has this whole spiel about how oh they took care of the monster and they weakened it and I only came in at the last moment to take the credit for myself Aww. because I'm a bastard and you people in the audience you have to tell everybody that I did all the work like he's playing the bastard just oh. to make other people yeah, feel good yeah what's interesting about Saitama as a character that I mean he could be he could have been incredibly arrogant and like mm-hmm. incredibly terrible person and he's not he's I mean he, he doesn't care too much but he does like, his origin story when they ask him why are you a hero I'm a hero for fun that's the origin story he tells them I want to be a hero that's it I'm there sold. is no tragedy there's it's everything that shouldn't work everybody that told you well you shouldn't do a character who's super powerful you shouldn't do a character who literally has no motivation you know they do it and it works so yeah, yeah one punch I'm man I'm definitely gonna check that out Uh, the MC Esker Award for Most Confusing Storyline? I'm going to go with something that I actually like. It's very confusing, but I like it being confusing. It'll All Hurt by uh, Feral Little Rimpel. It's a three-issue mini this year through the very small publisher, study group slash alternative comic. Never heard of it. Mm. Well, it's a, very, it's a very small publisher. The reason I know them is because they're one of the first on the previews, because it's A. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Right between Aardvark and Arnheim, it's like alternative comics. And it's a strange story about a group of kids who wake up sort of without any rhyme or reason in a post-apocalyptic land and they have to defeat the Red Wizard. And nothing is ever explained about how they got there, why they are so different. Like one of them is a girl who can turn into a small hamster-like creature, and one of them is an astronaut with flying bees in his suit. Bees? Yes, yeah, like that. <laughs> and one of them is like a warrior type from D&D, and they're all like kids. And nothing is ever, nothing is ever explained, and it's all played very strange, dream-like thing, and Feral the Rimple, who's a great artist, gets to totally play with the structure and the way the page is built, and like panels bleed into other panels, Or, you know, texts become, like, sort of speech bubbles. and it's, mm. I've read it twice, and I'm still not sure, you know, the how and whys and what it's supposed to symbolize, because it's sort of meant as a companion piece to his big graphic novel from two years ago, The Wrenchies. And The Wrenchies, I wasn't a big fan of, but this one I really liked because, A, because it was a lot shorter. The Wrenchies, like, this big, huge, giant thing, with, like, it goes on What, like and on. Blanket size? Hmm? Blanket size? No, 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 not, not 600 pages, like... 300 pages oh. and it just goes on and on this is like really short and concise and I'm still trying to digest what the hell he was talking about but I don't care what he was not I don't care even if I don't understand it all the way to the end even if it becomes like this blank for me it's an amazing piece of you know blank blank okay Uh, mine is actually something I was really looking forward because when someone told me that Matt Fraction is going to do an Odyssey Uh, in space uh, with women or like gender let whatever I was so on it and Odyssey just turned out to be so con- incredibly confusing I have no clue what's going on in any panel in any page like I I, I continue reading it because it's incredibly like gorgeous um, the art of Christian word right uh, it's incredibly incredibly gorgeous and the pieces of prose there are also really amazing but I just I, I have no idea what's going on at any point <laughs> yeah I awarded this as well to ODC Matt Fraction Christian <laughs> Word Image because like look here's the thing gender swapped version of the Odyssey it's not that complicated no right? just take the characters and switch the gender it's one around. of the most familiar yeah. stories in western canon 
How, oh my glob, what the hell? I mean, the mythology is impenetrable. The science doesn't make any sense. Something about ships that run on belief or whatever. And then you have Sebexes as the artificial third gender. And Zeus is also Zeus, but also Hera. And but I, like, I, I got to the end of the first arc. I didn't even know which way was up. I don't know what's going on here. And then like, Helen is male right so it's it, it's he but he's also the only he- man in what who why why would you do that just take all the women in the story and and flip their gender what, what are you what's going on so i i could not keep going and really like it it bothered me because i was also looking forward to it because you know the thought of a female odysseus would kick butt in space <laughs> in space and they're like what were they gonna do cersei and 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 uh what was her name uh not calliope well, I don't know. Calypso. Calypso. That, was, that was the name. Like, are they going to do Charybdis and, and like all the, the encounters from the familiar narrative of the Odyssey? And really, like, flipping the genders is all it takes because the yeah. Odyssey is a good story in itself, right? You have this person who wants to go home. They're going on this fantastic journey seeing all these crazy things, but all they want to do is go home to their wife and their son and their home. That's it. I get this feeling with Fraction that, like, say, Nick Spencer or Garth Ennis, he needs a good editor, someone who will tell him, No, no. don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> and whenever the reins are getting too loose, he just... It's good that he go- does whatever he's want. You know, it goes creatively for him. Less good for us as readers. Should have just called up Kelly Sue and be like, does this make any sense at all? And it's like, no. I think she thinks it does make sense. I don't know. Because I feel about them very much like in the term of like... She's coherent at least. Because they're writers that I I feel like I'm supposed to like, but whenever I read one of their things, I'm like, you're almost there, but you're doing this one... Thing. But like it, at least in most of their stuff, they are coherent. They, like, yeah, it sort of makes sense. Well, fraction, uh, fraction can make deadly sense. didn't really work for me. Be- well, okay, that's it's not like it didn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, literally, Odyssey doesn't make no, any it, sense. Like, Odyssey and and it intersperses. I think that those text phrases are like they're taking it from Homer's text and like mm-hmm. reworking it a little bit so that the genders are reflected. And that's like the only thing that I was like, okay, I understand that. But wait, why is this thing hanging upside down and going, uh, what, what's going on over here? It's just in sp- a mess. In a space, mess. nobody can hear you say, huh? <laughs> I cannot, I could not do it. The Middleman Award for Most Painful Cancellation. <sighs> this one's going to hurt. Uh, material by Alish Kot. Okay, maybe not that much. Well, yeah, not for sure. <laughs> I... I'm so sorry. It's in material. It was both obvious that it's gonna get canceled and very painful at the same time, because that's a series that went in the middle of you know the image comic fantasy and science fiction whatever, deep into painful social realism. Like, didn't Code pull the plug on that himself? Well, he pulled the plug because it sold not nothing all and an image. You know, when you when you sell a lot, you earn the money. When you sell nothing, you lose. So every issue becomes like a money sponge for the writer mm-hmm. artist. And material, I'm not surprised it didn't sell a lot because it was a painful read. It was every single issue was like, here is the terrible thing that's going to happen that happening in the world right now. You know, talking about the home square in Chicago or or people coming back from Guantanamo after being tortured for years with no rhyme or reason. And you watch all these characters go through the motions. And I found it to be very courageous and very you know true to itself piece of writing, but. And I'm said it went away, but I'm not surprised because I was looking at this thing and I'm and I'm thinking this is a fantagraphic comic published by Image, mm. like this is a comic for a very very small crowd 
and you pitch it through a mass media, not not mass, you know, images, not Marvel or DC, but a very big publisher for a very big audience, and most of them simply don't want to read it. Is this the one that he's continuing as graphic well, novels? Well, he, he, he says he's going to continue it as a series of graphic novels. I'm not sure if it's going to work. I, I hope it will. He I'm should not just sure. bypass Image and go, go straight to Comixology and sell it there. Yeah. Sad, but true. Um, mine would be Gotham by Midnight, uh, which I really liked. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, the most amazing thing I ever read, but I feel like, I felt like it was really a nice breakaway. I mean, still, you know, being in Gotham, but not being about, you know, what usually goes on in Gotham. And, I just, I love, like, you know, magical realism, like, urban fantasy sort of thing, and, um, I mean, I don't know why it was cancelled, I haven't looked that far, but I just, I think it would, could have been a really nice series to keep on going and reading, I, I was really enjoying it, and I'm sad it's gone. <laughs> There's always so much value in telling stories in Gotham that are not that exactly. centric You know, yeah. other people are there, Gotham Central was the same way, it's like, mm-hmm. these are people who live in this city. But there are other things going on that maybe Batman doesn't know about. And just as a fun anecdote, when they first announced it, I was sure that I, I misread the title and thought they were canceling Gotham Academy. It's like, you're uh, going to have hell to pay. Yeah. They were, they are coming for you with the pitchforks and the torches. No, if they would have canceled Gotham Academy, that would have been my pick for every <laughs> single one here. So, so but it, it is a, a good series. Uh, too bad that it didn't last. Uh, yeah. I mean, DC is DC, right? <laughs> So my pick is Hexed by Michael Allen oh, Nelson and oh. Dan Mora, published by Boom. This Now, we have to be fair here and say that I can't say with any certainty whether Hexed was canceled or whether Nelson pulled the plug. Because he's continuing the series in a novel format. Yeah. But still, these were this was this fantastic 12-issue they- series about this urban thief named Lucifer and this whole mystical underworld that she was entangled with. You had this amazing cast of antagonists and protagonists. Uh, Val, uh, uh, Madame Cymbeline was... Great villain. Like she was terrifying. a great villain who maybe got overexposed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like She keeps turning up and it's like, okay, now you're seeming less scary. Yeah, the problem, you, you sort of feel like the last arc was kind of forced to yeah. end up early. That's why I think that it was a cancellation. Yeah. Because, you know, like... Yeah. Towards it feels it, like a 20-issue series. Quick, that quick, the let's la- get everything The done. last four issues were like, well, you can't do 20, do 12, and then just... Do four. Is, yeah, which is why the last issue, I think, took like four months to come out. I got to the end of it, and I was like, hang on, I need to catch my breath. What's going on? Also, amazing Dan Moore art. Really, yeah. just it, top... That that's the guy who has to follow Emma Rios because she drew the first mini, and I'm like, mm. well, that, that, these are some big shoes to fill, my boy. He but he it. does it, yeah. His his take on because when Emma Rios drew the harlot, mm-hmm. she was horrifying. When Dan Mora drew her, she was horrifying in a different way. Like you're still looking at her, and it's like, oh my god, she had she a fan is made of eyeballs. What? And I really do miss the sort of urban fantasy with the darker tone that she represented and uh, I am going to miss the series immensely uh, we have the Yo Dog Award for most pleasant surprise Sean I think you're going to start with this one sure so the Archie reboot yes. Mark Wade, Fiona Staples, Chips Darsky and Eric Anderson and I hate to go biographical but I, I need to talk about this I grew up in the States in New York in a time when Archie was basically a joke. It was this incredibly sanitized view of teenage life that didn't correspond to anything that 
anyone in my generation or the generation after recognized as realistic life. You had meta, like uh, Afterlife with Archie and, and the introduction of Kevin Keller and, and all of these Sabrina adventures and Archie versus Punisher and Archie versus Predator. Fine, but it really was just sort of apocrypha at that point. So sort of like this artifact from 1950s America. Nobody really seemed to know what to do with it. So Archie's married to Betty. Archie's married to Veronica. For some reason, they never ran off to a Mormon compound and just got all three of them to, you know, just, <laughs> just to get it over with already. It was just a bunch of nonsense. And I don't know what I was expecting when they announced that they were going to relaunch the whole thing with Mark Wade and Fiona Staples on Archie, followed by Chip Zarsky and Erica Henderson on Jughead. And I read those issues and I was blown away. Never in my life did I ever think that I would be reading Archie and sympathizing with these characters and really feeling for them. In 2015. In 2015. <laughs> what? When would this happen? And you were so used to seeing them as like these cartoonish people with kind of creepy grins and nothing bad ever really happens in Riverdale. And in comes the story of Archie and, you know, the story, the lipstick incident broke my heart. And I'm like, am I having these feelings for Archie and Betty? Really? How can this be? And then when Chip Zarsky uh, started with Jughead, you know, I never found Jughead funny and now he's just like the way that Wade and Zdarsky are both characterizing him together. He's hilarious. <laughs> this is a guy who's like this ostracized socially. And yet he's so insightful. And yet at the same time, you know, the revelation that people can make food knocks him off his, <laughs> off his feet. He's like, what? And Erica Anderson is, of course, you know, drawing him with like teeny tiny pupils to show like he just realized that you can make food. And he goes into home ec and. Just like gives his teacher a heart attack, just starts whipping up all of these crazy foods. What a joy to read. And I would never, you could have, if you had told me two, five, ten years ago that I would be subscribed to Archie Comics, I'd be like, what have you been, what paint have you been sniffing today? What are you talking Future about? Future Sean, you're crazy. How, you're crazy. how can, no, I mean, if this had been any other comic, I would have been like, you know, it's it's good. I'm enjoying it. But the fact that it's an Archie reboot and they really went all out in terms of telling a contemporary story with characters who feel more real than I think they ever have. I think even in the 1950s, kids would have been reading that and be like, what the hell is this? What What's going on here? And they're moving forward. I know that they have more titles supposedly coming out. There was that whole Kickstarter scandal. I don't, I don't know what's going on there, but I'm on board for anything in this rebooted thing. Whatever's coming up next, I'm there. And I never thought that I would say that. So that's my pleasant <laughs> surprise. Uh, mine is more of a moment than an actual thing. Um, bisexual Catwoman was happened oh, this year. Nice. Um, I mean, it wasn't a huge surprise for most people because you know, most people kind of saw it coming when you read a Catwoman. But in thirty nine, uh, in the thirty nine issue, it actually did happen. And the thing is, not only did she kiss another woman, the writer who I just now forgot her name Genevieve something I, I just, something or other yeah um she's gone she, anyway unfortunately yeah so. unfortunately but like the fact that she immediately after it came out she came on Twitter and said yeah it's canon she is bisexual and saying the word bisexual is so not like it's not it's not you know common in in media and 
in all ways, but especially in comics. So I think that was a huge thing to happen in 2015. We're going to get back to that in the next category. Yeah, it's got, yeah it's, me too. I am going to... It's sort of been a big year of, you know, things going forward because we had Lumberjanes, yeah. a comic mm. for children. Yeah. We had... Uh, we had homose- not homosexual, uh, lesbian relations, and we had one character was transgender, apparently. Yeah. And it was just like, it's a thing. And it's a comic for children, and nobody write it. Nobody's on the internet going like, you can't give our children this I'm sure trash. someone somewhere is writing. We just don't nobody care. That, nobody that we've noticed. Yeah. It, what, Fox hasn't found out about yeah, them yet. The reason, the reason I'm, I'm in, like singling Catwoman is because she's such a huge character. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone knows Catwoman. Mm-hmm. She's there. She's like... Even if you haven't read one comic book in your life, you know who Catwoman is. And the fact that she's now bisexual, and I hope she's going to continue, and it's not going to be, like, disappear Hercules. off. D- don't, yeah. don't crisis them, please. Um, so I think that was a huge mm. thing to happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with The Rabbit by Rachel Smith. Uh, she's a cartoonist slash writer, and I've read some of her work before. She did a graphic novel called The House Party and some short webcomic like Flimsy the Cat and such. Which were always fun, and I really liked them, but I've bought her second big graphic novel, The Rabbit, big, like 96 pages, big mm-hmm. for her graphic novel this year, The Rabbit, in um, in England, and I read it in one sitting, like, short, and it, I was blown away. It's this amazing end-of-childhood story about these two girls walking into a forest, and there's this rabbit, and then things go horribly wrong, and it's such an amazing piece of... Mm. Uh, childhood of like understanding the way things end and the feeling of well you gotta grow up sometimes yeah. mm-hmm. want to or not and it's, and it's really powerful and she has this very cartoony like style that sort of looks like it'll fit more into comedy but she makes it work with these characters with this moment because when there are short moments where it becomes like a ho- almost a horror story and the horror is even scarier because everything is like so you know Bright looking and cartoony and naive, mm. and then you know the, and then the rabbit gets violent. Oh wow! Whoa. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I always kind of liked her stuff, but this is like the huge leap forward for me. And she also did apparently a graphic novel adaptation of a series about children, uh, not a, a graphic novel adaptation of a young adult mystery series about a kid with uh, Asperger's. Asperger's dealing Ooh. dealing with issues. Nice. Yeah, so yeah. I'll look her Ra- up. Rachel Smith, yeah. you know, great artist, great writer. Look her up. From the highest of the highs, we go to the lowest of the lows with the Dolly Parton Award for Biggest Bust of 2015. And I would like to start with the outing of Iceman. Longtime listeners may recall that I had a very, very negative reaction to this story when it first came out, no pun intended. Looking back, I can honestly say it's still the sloppiest, most ill-thought-out story beat that Marvel has put out this year. And the reason for that is, without meaning to, because I know he didn't intend this, Brian Michael Bendis has basically validated the opinions of, oh, I don't even want to talk about them, but let's call them the vocal minority who whine about every single attempt at diversity. Every time someone tries to do something, it's the same rhetoric of, oh, it's not organic, it's not natural storytelling, you're just shoehorning it in, agendas, SJW, The vocal minority sounds like they should be fighting the new mutants. The the vocal minority needs to put out their album and shut the hell up. Anyway, (laughs) 99% of the time, these people are wrong. And Bendis had to be the one who wrote an unorganic, artificial, shoehorn, transparent marketing gimmick wherein Iceman turns out to be, quote, full gay, because Gene tells him so, 
in spite of never having even hinted at attraction to men. And I'm not talking about history here. I'm not talking about continuity because you could argue that he could have had something with North Star in Chuck Austin's run. He could have had something with Cannonball in Mike Carey's run. Let's set all of that aside. In Bendis' own run, never once was there a hint that Iceman might be gay. Or, sorry, full gay is the official term, apparently. I'm, I'm, so they say. Yeah, they're like little gay, and they're, then you have medium yeah. gay, and then you have it's full like when, gay. When you go to McDonald's, it's like, do you want the middle gay or the, <laughs> uh, the, the supersized gay? And even more infuriating, and this is relating to what you said about, uh, Catwoman, is the fact that apparently it never occurred to them to just say, so Iceman's bisexual. bisexual. And then you wouldn't have to invalidate all of the relationships that he had. Not that his relationships were these big iconic moments. It's not like, Cyclops and Jean Grey, yeah. right? Or Cyclops Iceman, and, Emma Iceman and Zelda. People remember that romance. No, but like ages. I, Iceman and Rogue. Iceman had a thing with Emma Frost. He had a thing with um, what was her name? Angelica Drake. Uh, um, I don't. Firestar. Know. Uh, Houston. Not Angelica Houston, Tom. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and I don't remember her name. I'm sorry, Firestar. So he had these canonical relations with, with women. They weren't iconic or anything, but they were still there. And instead of taking the perspective that that were that it was all part of him, Jean Grey apparently decides to tell him that he's gay because, and the evidence is, you know, he had all these failed relationships with women. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. That defines every single comic book character in Marvel and DC. Wolverine. History. Based on like if if failed relationships with women make you gay. Wolverine. Well, there was this one. There was that one time <laughs> on Extreme Dare, X-Men. Dare, Daredevil. Dare, oh, Daredevil. Yeah. Daredevil doesn't just fail relationships, he kills the women in them. So you you can read the subtext in like they quite end up easily. dead, just run off with Foggy and you'll be a happier person. <laughs> um but it was just so sloppy and and really infuriating because what it did in, in my eyes, and again, this is just how I felt about it, seeing it unfold, is Bendis basically ended up cheapening what everyone else is doing because you have other writers at Marvel who are trying to introduce gay characters, who are trying to introduce lesbian characters. You have a transgender character in Angela. You have all of these new faces coming in and maybe a couple of old characters are also uh, coming out. That is also something that's going on. And then... This read like such a sales tactic. It read like something he just threw in there. He didn't even foreshadow. Apparently, Bendis is too good for foreshadowing mm-hmm. now. It's like it never occurred to you that if you were going to do this arc with a character, you might want to sort of build up towards it instead of just being... So you said Ileana's cute, but you know you're gay, right? What? Before they are rebooting everything. Right? Yeah, it's right. Like... And also, like, I mean, to their credit, the the Iceman that's turns up after the reboot is apparently still gay. Yeah. But it's like and then they they bring in this whole narrative out of nothing, out of thin air. Like um so he was a mutant and he decided that he couldn't be mutant and gay, so he suppressed his gayness to the point where nobody apparently knew about it, <laughs> including him. It was just a mess and it it's a good the, the thing that that enrages me is that it, it was it's a good idea. There's no, like, if you're gonna out one of the original X-Men, it's gonna be Iceman. There's no one, there's no other candidate. You can't do it to Cyclops because that, that whole thing with Jean Grey is still huge. Beast, uh, Morrison tried it, nobody cared. It might as well be Iceman, right? Also, he's the youngest character, so they can do the whole thing where he grows up and, and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, 
This was a, this was really really especially when poorly done. Other writers did it well, like in X Factor when they um, uh, Richter uh, and yeah Richter and Chad yes, and Richter had previous relationship in women, and yet it did work out that he was gay and not like even if he didn't want him. Okay, no bisexual and like full gay. Okay, but there is a At way. Peter to, David didn't say it. He didn't yeah. say like. You're full gay. It's like, no, you had this relationship with Rain. You had this relationship with Teresa. These things happened. happened. It, But maybe it wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. There he isn't. wanted Chatterstar. Speaking of which, my choice of the year, Ex Alonso, Hercules. Oh, God. <laughs> the Hercules interview. And, you know, poor, poor, poor Dan Abnett, who... He's the writer. He's the actual guy who's supposed to do this series. And nobody asked him. Nobody and, asked him. And, and Dan Abbott is a good writer. He's a damn good writer. And he doesn't have any sort of problem like that. But then Axel Alonso being asked, will this Hercules be still bisexual as Because was? people want to know. Yeah. And the best answer in this case, Mr. Alonso, is, well, ask the writer. I'm not, I haven't read the scripts yet. It's going to be a great series. I haven't read the scripts yet. But no, I green lighted it, so I'm yeah, assuming it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, he's giving the stupid answer and bringing us months and months of debate when a actual Hercules was both bisexual in the myth and in the comic, and b nobody who was going to read a Hercules series by then Abnett is going to be well. Hercules is bisexual. I cannot read this no, now. No, no, no. What you talking about? No. You're not bringing out Spider-Man from the closet. No, it's Hercules. No. And you know what? What's even crazier about that is that the sto- if Alonzo had kept his trap shut, which I know he can't do, but if he had been able to, the first issue of Dan Abnett's run starts up with Hercules shacked up with Gilgamesh. If he hadn't said anything, people would have just assumed. And that would have been fine. Like, Abnett doesn't have... He's not obligated to do anything. Yeah. But it would have been like, so Hercules is living in this apartment with his da- down-on-his-luck hero friend Gilgamesh. Who, by the way, you know, Gilgamesh and Kidu was a thing. Go yeah. ask the ancient. Uh, you know, they. It's all. It's all written down. It's all there. So you know, you could have drawn that conclusion as a reader, independent of Alonzo sticking his nose in. But he just had to be like, no, no, no. Hercules is straight. I have spoken. Hercules. Hercules. Who cares? Uh, I, it's nice we have this theme going on because uh, it's horrible my... <laughs> that we have this theme no, going on. It's kind of sad. Mine is actually a bit different. Um, so we were you were talking about Grayson, uh, Grayson and Midnighter, and also another relationship Grayson had this year was with uh, Tiger, uh, the number one uh, yeah. uh, agent, uh, who is a Pakistani Muslim man. Um, and the thing is, Tom King came out and said he wants Grayson to be bisexual. He said it See, on he Twitter. Said he said that on Twitter. He said that, that if it was were up to him, Grayson would become bisexual this year. And I mean, never I gonna happen. never gonna happen. <laughs> but I was, you know, in my like biggest dreams, that would have been the thing that happened in 2015, and obviously it didn't. So um, Tumblr it would have exploded. exploded. Yeah. I mean, because when you think about it, he has had so many relationships with other male characters that could have been Roy Harper he's gonna call up Roy Harper he's gonna oh, this is gonna, it's gonna be like a chain Jason. reaction of like he's just gonna get like everybody he, I was not aware that he, he said he that he said that it makes so much sense when you read the issue because it's like because if he wouldn't have said that like because I am enjoying Grayson but there is a thing called you know queer baiting when you are, you know, kind of playing with the notion that they might be gay or lesbian or whatever, but you're not actually committing it, you know, you're making it a big joke. Like, they do it a lot in Sherlock, in Supernatural, in most media. Would Iceman count for that, in that case? 
Well, no, Iceman because he is gay. Like what? Oh, so it's it's, it's if like he's when not. you are not when you're not when you have like two uh, same sex um, people who are very close, and it's obvious. Like if we were in a you know mm. normal. When you're playing planet. for a subsection of fans without coming out and just saying, you know, yes. Yeah, when you are baiting ah. with queer relationship, that's literally and not queer following ba- through. and yeah. not following that, through okay, to get more, you know, viewers because obviously they know that's, that's what. But, yeah, but that's less Tom King's fault than the men. No, obviously, it's like when Gail Simone's. That, no, was, it's Diane Nelson. Yeah, I'm when, telling you. When, yeah. when Gail Simone wanted to do the scene in Birds of Prey, where I think it was Black Canary saying, "I'm 75% heterosexual." And they basically forced her to rewrite it as I'm 100% heterosexual. I mean, everybody knew she was screwing around with Oracle back then, and everybody exactly. was okay with it. You know, yeah, like, even Chuck Dixon didn't care, and Chuck Dixon that. cares about these things. Yeah, and when you have, you should care less. When you're talking about all these things, when goddamn Rob Liefeld comes to Marvel and people ask him, and people ask him, who right, asks him? Right, I want right, to know right. who asked for and his opinion. And people ask him, are you going to make uh, Shatterstar straight again? And he's like, no. When he Rob, said he would, no, he said no. When in an interview when he re- when they announced he returns to Marvel, he said, "No, I'm not going to do that." Do you know so why when, he said that? When Rob Liefeld is smart enough to understand, <laughs> don't do these things, and you're not, you're in a no, 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 you're no. in a. Pit. This isn't about smart. This is about Rob Liefeld going to Joe Casada and being like, "So, Joe, can I retcon Shatterstar?" And then Peter David has like a crossbow <laughs> aimed right at him. He's like, "Go ahead, put your pen on the paper. I dare you." After I put three hundred issues into this, you're going to come in and re retcon that? I don't think so. Um, yeah, so the fact that he did say it, like, at least it, it feels less, you know, like they're using it and more like the, he genu- genuinely wanted to do it, but he can't. So, yeah. I mean. It, it, the heartbreaking thing is that with Grayson, it's this bizarre paradox of if it had been any other character, DC might have allowed it, but the book wouldn't have been as successful yes. because it's Dick Grayson. Yeah. And he has this status within the DCU as being, you know, sort of like the male sex symbol, which Batman usually isn't, unless it's Zenny O'Neill, <laughs> in which case, you know, I mean, you know what happens after that. Uh, but so it, it's sort of like anyone else, if it had been like... Tim Drake. <laughs> if, well, yeah, yeah, if it had been Tim Drake, if it had been uh, Kyle Rayner... Or like you know, someone that DC doesn't care about as their A list. Well, Kyle Rayner does spend most of Omega Man in chains, literally. It's <laughs> the chains of the writers. Um, so chains of heterosexuality. Well, it, no, yeah. it's it's still Tom King. He knows yeah. what he's but doing. But see, the problem with Kyle Rayner is that he's the or example for for women in refrigerators. So you kind of yeah. have to keep mm-hmm. that context. Although I guess, it, well, no, if it's boyfriends in refrigerators, then there's all sorts of different connotations to that. Uh, can I do a bit of a spoiling for Omega Man? Sure. For the, I, I have for not the, read it yet, yeah, but yeah, I Just to. a bit of a spoiler because it's the big shocking thing in the preview for Omega Man, Kyle Renner was killed. Yeah, I remember Literally that. chopping his head off. When they were... Yeah. Before the Flashpoint. Okay. And then they brought him back. So they literally fridged Kyle Renner. So I assume Tom King know what he was doing. Did they put him in the fridge? I don't... He was in a box. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Fridging Kyle Renner. I love it. Gail Simone must be super validated. Two negatives make a plus. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, shall no, we move on to something a bit on. nicer? Yes. The Lieutenant Warf Award for Most Honorable Mention. I'm going to go with my man, who is not my man, but he's a good man anyway. You're a good man, Brandon Graham, mm-hmm. leader of many packs. He, everything that he writes nowadays sort of become like a huge project for people he likes and he like moves them forward. It's never his thing. So Prophet went from being a Brandon Graham series to 
Brandon Graham and a whole lot of pals doing this big space adventure epic, and Island is Brandon Graham and Emery is bringing this young talent together, and Adehouse, of course, mm. trying to advance all these women forward and giving them, you know, time in the limelight. So, Brandon Graham, there was this thing a few years ago when he was, I think, Twitter arguing with Brian Wood or whatever. And he was, he was <laughs> like, you're not using, you're not using your spot to do anything right, you're just advancing yourself, and they were like, well, what are you going to do with all your limelight? And he's, well, here, I'm going to show you what I'm doing. I'm putting other people one step forward. So, good for you, Brandon Graham. Mm -hmm. um, mine would be something that I couldn't really put in any other um, category, but I did I did want to mention it, the Supergirl TV series, uh, which I know has a lot of mixed reaction. I personally love it. Like, it's such a, you know, like, fun I mean, it's like 40 minutes I can spend in a week not thinking about anything. I heard she has a cousin. Mm, yeah, they, they might have something. mentioned that. They might have mentioned that, yeah. Um, I don't really like her casting as, uh, I don't know, I saw her in Glee and that kind of ruined her for me, I think. But that's, like, that's everyone's story. Yeah. <laughs> um, Who made it out of that? Well, no, Grant Gustin made it Grant out of that. Grant Gustin. Life. But he was like less, I mean, he was less prophetic on the show, so. Uh, but um, the casting of Jimmy Olsen, I feel like that should have been its own um, category because that is such a good casting decision. Um, first of all, making him black, and second of all, well, not making him Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> uh, making him like he's not like he's, he's a photographer. Yeah, he's a photographer. Yeah, but like he's not, you know, the ditzy friend who follows oh. her around. He's like, um, I get, I miss that though. So the ditzy side, like, there's no ditzy sidekick on Supergirl. There is. Oh, there okay. is another guy. Oh, okay. the oh okay. so they split him in two. Yeah, basically. Sure. Um, it's probably a Superman plot that must have happened at some point. <laughs> like Jimmy Olsen gets split yeah, in half. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know it's really fun, and I think you know it's it, it was what Flash used to be mm. before it got complicated. Oh, well, I'll get um, to that. Right. So yeah, I just I enjoy it, and I think people give it too much. You know, too much crap for being what it it, it it isn't you know meant to be anything more than it is so hmm. okay. i i do have to give them points for that incredible uh, martian manhunter reveal yeah that was something well, that, that i was, was not expecting and good for them that was really well done and also laura Belenti's on it and she's amazing so you yeah. know how bad could it possibly be he said having never watched the show. <laughs> <laughs> so my award for honorable mention is slightly meta i want to give a big shout out to the participants of the secret convergence on infinite podcasts this was a an event well, there's no other way to say it an event in which the hosts of nine separate comic book podcasts including our faves paul o'brien uh, Graham McMillan, Al Kennedy, Jay uh, Edidin, Miles Stokes, and many, many more, mixed and matched their shows to do a nine-episode commentary on all things comics. They talked about who would win in a fight. They talked about are things better or worse, D-listers that they love to hate or hate to love, comics that they like to share with other people. It was Heavy just like continuity. The podcast mm -hmm. where uh, Paul O'Brien tried to explain Kang the Conqueror, <laughs> the yeah. history of the immortal time traveler <laughs> Kang the Conqueror, I mean, and how he was Paul... both a pharaoh and not a pharaoh, mm -hmm. and, and Immortus and not Immortus, and maybe Doctor Doom. And therefore, maybe also Iron Lad. <laughs> he talked about Avengers The Crossing, which nobody does without getting nosebleeds. So really, kudos to them. And in fact, there was... The, the the only downside to it is that when you're looking for a specific part in a nine-part series, you can't find it. But there's a scene where Al Kennedy brought up the part where 
Roy Harper's daughter died and he went on this mental trip and started using a dead cat as a nunchuck. Right. And it's like that that comic won an award for best, best depiction of mental of illness. <laughs> mental illness. And it's just, they all started laughing and it was just a really great fun event. And we're not even bitter that we weren't invited. We're okay we'll with that. We'll do our own. We'll do our yeah. own crossover. Yeah. Yes. So uh, that was, but it was a fantastic event and I was... I enjoyed every episode, and kudos to them. Our final award for the... The Mushu Award for Most Dishonorable Mention. Yes, we have to end on a negative note because we are after all the smorgasbord. Uh, Orphan Series. This year we had Material, we had Red One, we had the one with... I don't even remember its name, the one about the guy in Vietnam. Pisces. Pisces. Yeah. Which, I didn't even like Pisces, but... Let let the men finish. The series was axed at three issues in the middle of a damn story arc, and, well, it's gone. This is all image, of course. This is all image, and the, it's the bad part of the image experiment, wherein if the writer-artist doesn't make enough money, he sort of had to cut ties. But this is... It sort of hurts the belief of the reader in the comic, so now whenever I pick a new... Whenever I see a new Alish Kot series published, I'm like... And he tells people, you have to buy it in monthly because the writer, artist, need the support, you know, at the, at the exact moment the issue comes out. If you buy the trade, they get a less for it. They don't get enough money and they can't continue the series, which is fine. But then I keep asking myself, I gave you my money before. I gave you my trust and you couldn't, you couldn't deliver. You left you, me hanging. You left me hanging. So next time you'll do a new thing, I will ask myself twice. Should I give him the money? Yeah, like, are you actually going to make it to the to the part where you write the end at the end? <laughs> Is it going to be there or not? No, and it's it's a problem. It's a problem for it's a problem that now for the readers because well, we don't get what you wanted, which is a proper ending. But it's also a problem for the creators because if you do that again and again, people stop will stop trust you. If monstrous disappears mid arc, I. I'm gonna kill like, someone. How, how can you trust them afterwards? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like so. And then Marjorie Lou uh, is gonna come back to me and say, "I have this new book." It's like, mm. and even ongoing series are sort of like disappeared. What happened to Egos? Did the, the second arc finish? No, the Black, second arc. Got the stuck last in the... issue is still. I think because it deals with like black holes in science fiction, it's just stuck. Somewhere. Time dilation. <laughs> Time dilation. Okay. It'll show up eventually. I'll, I'll have and, my grandkids. And pick up you can. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, the arc is what's important. You know, when you read it in an arc, it'll make perfect sense, which is fine. But you can't then say, but buy the monthly issue, which yeah, is now yeah. no longer monthly. If I buy a serial something... It's been like six months. And I have to wait six months between issues, then the serial nature is pointless. Therefore, mm-hmm. I will wait for the book. But then you go online on Twitter or Tumblr or your personal blog or whatever and chide me for, you know, support me monthly. Write monthly. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. Support me monthly, publish monthly. I'm not talking specifically about the creators of Egos now because I don't know if they ever said it on Twitter. I'm talking in general. No, it happens a lot with image creators specifically where they get upset that they're not getting the revenue from single issues. And I'm like, excuse me, image's reputation right now, for all that I give them all the credit in the world for putting out, you know, comics that you don't find anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And, And just a great selection, but, you know, Support me monthly, publish monthly. That's that's what it is because I can't I can't do it with them. I, I wait. I, I I'm a trade buyer with Image because I know that if I get invested, and then it's you know and then it's Peter Panzerfaust where I'm like, where is the last issue? What do you mean you have no ending? It turns me into Ren from Ren and Stimpy, and I don't want to be <laughs> Ren. So, you know, no thanks. Kylo Ren, you're just angry, <laughs> swinging your sword, breaking. Nobody understands me. 
The dark side is so dark and warm. Uh, mine is actually related once again to what I talked about earlier, the super go. So what I really hated the last couple of months was this huge cat fight that people are trying to make Supergirl versus Jessica Jones. Like oh the my fact God. because we have only two female led, you know, T V series, uh, Agent Carter is kind of you know, it was a year ago, so people tend to forget her. People are trying to make this into, you know, who which is better. And obviously Jessica Jones like yeah. is a good show and I wasn't gonna say it, but yeah. I mean it is. <laughs> right. You can't but like why is that I mean nobody does there it. There can be only one. Can yeah. there, there apparently, apparently there can be only one. The internet grew up on Highlander and Highlander Two and Highlander Three <laughs> and that's the lesson they oh took. There should have been only one. So everything there can be only, only one, one series with a woman in it. With a woman in it. Well, they don't do it between, like, they do it between Arrow and Flash, but not lo- not to the magnitude that they do it with Supergirl and Jessica Jones. And the fact is that both women, the, both main character, main actors watch the other show and they love, like, they both love the, the two other show. Why must it be a fight? Like, why can't they be just two different female characters in two different... Look, you can either enjoy the Flash or you can shows. enjoy the Sopranos. You, ca- you can't possibly allow <laughs> both not of these. True. No, but I, I think... Well, like, yes, you I, can't I know, enjoy the Sopranos. It's speaking impossible. only for myself, like when I think about that comparison, the thing that comes to mind is why isn't Supergirl as good as Jessica Jones? Like, because you know Melissa Rosenberg was the the showrunner for Jessica Jones, and it's like she comes in and she has this amazing treatment, and you have all these great female characters, and you have this really amazing story, and then you look at Supergirl, and it's like. There's a paradigm for you on how to do better. Why are you not doing so that? So I'm going to ask you a question. Why isn't Arrow as good as Daredevil? Because or DC will never be Marvel. Well, well <laughs> no, no. But I no, think, you're, I you're think right. the problem with Arrow, well, from what I've seen, because I've stopped liking it for three episodes. Arrow, Xanax, are you kidding yeah. me? Who can get Arrow through? really wanted to be Batman. He didn't want to be an Arrow TV show. The Daredevil TV show. Wants to be a Daredevil TV show. The, Je- the Jessica Jones TV show really wants to be a Jessica Jones TV show. The Arrow TV show really wants to be Batman. He oh, does yeah. the voice. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, The Flash, it's fun and it's nice. It's not as good as Dare. Like, when no one yeah. is making those comparisons. But the minute that you have... I think it's a problem that we have only two female, like, main characters and the fact that Immediately, what people do is make them, you know. And the fact that it's DC versus Marvel makes it even more irresistible. It's like, let's go back to the old thing of like, you are either a DC fan or a Marvel fan, Mm -hmm. and depending on where you are, like, you can't enjoy both, because that's just wrong. Because, you know, you're you're either full DC or you're full Full Marvel, Marvel. according to Bendis, remember. So, uh, it's. They should start because there's DC Nation Marvel Zombies, so they should start having nicknames for. Followers of other companies, you're like Image... I'm going Image, I don't know what no, you're doing, you're like, <laughs> I'm just going to... You're Image... I got ro- Boom, Image Boom? Robot, you're an IDW... Uh, we're Boomites. Yes, we're, you're an IDW follower, oh, I don't know. We're Boomsticks. Mm, <laughs> there you nice. go. So, I mean, no, because really, when it got, it always falls into that rivalry. And it's so exhausting. Yeah. It's just like, you know, no one... People compare the Flash and Arrow, but... They're so, never going to be like on on standing ground. The Flash is the Flash, and the Arrow. Yeah, even in comics, who ever heard of like you know when the Flash would turn up and a? There's a reason he ran off with Hal Jordan and not with uh, <laughs> Barry Allen. It's like, listen, that's just not going to work. Um, but yeah, I think that people need to ease up on the rhetoric of 
you know, immediately taking these two female characters because also they're talking about like, well, now Wanda's going to get in a fight with uh, with Natasha in Civil yeah. War and let's see who's going to win that one. It's just like, no, no, we don't need to do that. So, but speaking of The Flash, uh, my award and our final pick for the Smorgies 2015, the most dishonorable mention goes to the Legends crossover on Arrow and Flash. And like, look, everyone involved should have known better. You know, it drops to the floor when the Hawks are at the door. Flash, in particular, has spent most of its second season, which, you know, after spending a first season being a lot of fun and very enjoyable, almost all of season two was setting up Legends of Tomorrow with these arbitrary introductions of characters you don't care about who leave immediately afterwards, so you even more don't care about them. And you you just want them to move on. And then they get to this big annual crossover that they always have. And it introduces Hawkman, which is your first warning sign. And then it introduces Hawkgirl, which is strike two. Then it introduces Vandal Savage, and they're all leftovers from Alex Proyas' Gods of Egypt. I'm not following this. I almost hope you would say, and then they introduce Hawkbaby, but... (laughs) Listen, they went to ancient Egypt. It looked like something out of Ridley Scott. I'm like, no, you can't do it. What? And and after Alex Proyas gets so much feedback where he's, like, apologizing for whitewashing. He's like, well... Let's just toss all these white people in <laughs> and do it again. And it, 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 the, the, those two episodes, like the actual crossover where you find out the Hawks backstory. I'm just sitting here. Why am I watching this show? Where's Linda? Dr. Light is running around. Where's Zoom? Is nobody going to talk about Zoom? What, why are we sitting here talking about magic staff and e- e- Egyptian meteors? Any second now, Uatu is going to show up and be like, Hawkman "Listen, I can't is one do of this these anymore. characters that keeps on being drafted up simply because he was there. He's very old, so therefore he always has to be exist. Even though I don't think there was a good Hawkman comic since never, never. <laughs> never because every time they start a Hawkman comic, first explain who is Hawkman. Um, hang on, let me check Wikipedia. Your page has crashed. What? Because it, you, you just can't. Hawkman continuity makes Kang the Conqueror and the Phoenix look like beginner's guy. You know what the funny thing is? I was thinking back and it's like, I remember Hawkgirl on the animated Justice League series. And she was fantastic. She was so good. The reason she was so good is because they never went into her origin story. As soon as they did that, it's like where the reincarnated Egyptian alien lovers from uh, whose immortality is being harvested by this caveman with a really long well, beard to be and fair, knives. And to be fair, when they did this beach, she looked at the Carter Hall and like, no. No, 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 no. He's no, not. No. Yeah. You're a crazy. You're a cray cray. Yeah. And that, but then she runs off with him. So like, how? how no, you no, no. She, she, she. And won. then they play it like you know, Cisco's losing the love of his life, and like you met her last episode. No, no, no. I, I really liked the episode here? because they played it as very disturbing. He was like, "I'm in love with you," and she's, "Who the hell are you?" <laughs> yes. Stop following me. I mean, it would have been great if she. Like, I'm trying to think, how could it have been fixed? It's like, maybe she never gets her memories back. And then he's like, well, we got to go. And it's like, oh, I'm not going anywhere with you. You're a weird old man. The, the, big, the big statement with that TV show was, you know, fate doesn't matter because they keep on telling her in Green Lantern, you're going to have to end up together because your baby in the future is going to be a superhero. And in the end, they're saying, well, no, we're not going to no. end up together because time travel says so. We're our I own mean, people. We're independent. We're going to date whoever we want. And then the show was canceled, proving her right. You know, it, it's just the, it, it's been dra- the the whole Legends of Tomorrow's setup has been dragging down the series. I've been waiting for them to get to Earth Two. I've been waiting for them to 
move forward with the storylines that they already have. Mm-hmm. Grodd shows up and it's like, well, Grodd, just another day. Grodd is not just another mm-hmm. day at the zoo, you know. And it's like, but he's not in Legends of Tomorrow, so he's not important. I just, I couldn't deal with it. I don't know, like, they're coming back now, and it's like, now that the show's finally going to start soon, maybe they're done with the setup, and we can move on to, like, let's see Earth 2, Barry Allen. I want to know who Zoom is. I'm betting Eddie, but I might be wrong about that, because he's off Quantico now, so maybe they can snatch him back up. I don't know. But, like, can we please... Two words. Wally West. Yes. 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 Kid Flash. And I mean, listen, I know that people are worried about, like, if Wally West is around, that means Barry's going to die. Mm. I'm okay with that. <laughs> he's been, it's like, look, I like Grant Gustin. I think he's been doing a terrific job. But, you know, me being 30 years old, he, Barry Allen is not my Flash. Wally mm. West is. And the casting for him is really good as well. Yeah. So, just grab Iris, go to the future, and leave us alone. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I really hope that they're just done and, like, let's go back to... The fun, like fun. Let's have fun again, because it has not been fun. Mm. Talking about paternity tests, and and everybody dies, mm. but then they don't, and then Vandal Savage, and then of course John Barrowman has to come back and be like, you know, so listen, I know they killed you, but like, you know, I'll, I'll bring you back. It's okay. It's like, no, John Barrowman, go home. So that was my picks for the my extremely dishonorable <laughs> mention. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Stop it. And that was the Smorgies, our yes. second annual Smorgies Award. Uh, thanks for everybody listening in episode after episode on, or even if you just got in now. Uh, thanks for Mayan. Thank for you being guys our get, for, for being our friend. You. Thank you for being a friend. Da, da, da. We're not going to end with with a musical number because none, <laughs> I can't sing for nothing. And we like our lawsuits. Also, we haven't paid for these rights. That's and true. And we're very lawsuit yeah. weary. Seacord can't be putting up with no like copyright. You, you sing the Golden Girls theme, yeah. you got to go. So, for the Smorgasbord, I'm Sean Edry. I'm Mayan Friel. I'm Tom Shapira. Until next time, bon appetit. <laughs>